Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanfer here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. The episode number today is 316. The topic is selection and upkeep of defensive weapons. We might just talk about pistols. We'll see. Uh, today is October 14th, 2022. Can't believe how quickly this year's gone by. Funny. I guess that's what happens when you're busy. Um, my background's in law enforcement. Been doing the cop thing for a long time. Uh, defensive handguns are a big part of a police officer's job. If they're paying attention, if they're good with their tools, if they're striving beyond the minimum standard that their agencies provide and expect, um, there are some interesting misconceptions with what defensive, what a defensive weapon is. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's a defensive weapon. How do we define that? So we have a, we have a, an experienced panel. Who can talk about this? It can be a good, good discussion. I'm going to look forward to it. Most of the guns behind me could be considered defensive handguns. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to necessarily say what we're not going to focus on specifics 
or spe uh, specific example, specific examples. In my opinion, there's no epitome of this is the best of everything because there are so many different, uh, basically we, if you live by the concept of mission drives, the gear, a snubby might be a far better thing than a role in special and vice versa. Depend, and it depends on, depends on the mission. So I think I'm going to stop talking and have the panelists provide their background, Brian. Let's see, Brian, 20 year cop podcaster on the concealed carry podcast network there with, uh, Riley Bowman and, uh, Rob Beckman. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, I've been an instructor for, uh, I've been an instructor for a long time. I've got, I've been through, you know, the gamut of armor schools and, uh, spent a fair amount of time working on building, servicing 1911, 2011 platforms. I, I'm a cylinder and slide graduate. I got the stamp from Bill Lockridge. Woo. That was cool. Like 15 years ago. Oh, uh, no, 16 years ago. Wow. Uh, spent a fair amount of time shooting like PPC competitions, some three guns, some USPSA, IDPA, all the A's, um, and then service in Smith and Wesson revolvers, pre-lock revolvers primarily. Uh, nothing major, not like barrel swaps or anything like that. It was just, you know, action jobs, tuning, stuff like that. Uh, pretty fair amount of that stuff. So uh, a little bit with Browning high powers, uh, you know, it, I had a dad that had an affinity for like custom guns. So he would buy them on the cheap and go, Hey, you got that shop that I built for you. So fix that, you know, it's a good time, but that's kind of me in a nutshell, right? So Browning high powers, 1911s, 2011s, but no Glock. It's amazing. I, <laughs> I was always, I, I gotta be like a hundred percent up front. Uh, the first thing I did when I got into law enforcement was throw my Glock into the safe, my issued g22 gen 3 and uh mm -hmm. that one went by the wayside as fast as i could un get rid of it and uh yeah so and i just never found a whole lot of like i never took a whole lot of pleasure in burning something with a soldering iron or trying to fit a custom barrel into a gun that's really not gonna yeah. Okay. You'll get a performance increase out of it, but is the juice or is the barrel that cost as much as the gun on a blue box special worth the squeeze? Probably. I don't know. For me, it wasn't. Um, unless you were going to shoot lead, you know, then put a traditional rifled stainless barrel in it and call it a day. Uh, but they were just, it, that never really appealed to me. Right. Uh, I stuck with double action SIGs, double action Berettas a lot. Um, and then now I'm back around on Glock. Weird. Did you ever go yeah. through? You had to have gone through Glock armor. Everyone has been through Glock armor. Yeah, mine's mine's still active. I went through it the first time in like 2001. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, my last one, I think, was a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, it was just an update on the Gen 5 stuff. So Yeah. 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 Matter of fact, I might be up for renewal soon, but I don't think there... It, I, yeah, I don't think there's any more basic unit of armorship or gunsmith smithy than Glock armor 
that's pretty basic. And that's not a knock against the gun. It's actually well-designed and uh, the aftermarket is wonderful for it. It's just simple. Yeah. Riley. Riley Bowman, uh, vice president with concealedcarry.com. Uh, concealed carry podcast is, is my podcast as many know me for. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, let's see. Well, I did the law enforcement reserve thing for about eight years. Uh, during that same time, became a Glock armorer. Uh, I've let that lapse now a couple of years ago. Also did the P320 armorers course. I'm pretty well acquainted with the P320 platform because I shoot it a lot. Yeah. And I've some time with the guys up at uh, Gray Guns at their facility. Uh, not doing like formal training, but but definitely, you know, learning uh, from them some stuff. Um, very active shooter, obviously. I shoot, you know, many thousands of rounds each year. USPSA, masterclass competitor. Um, and then uh, I do the traveling instructor thing on a limited basis as well. And let's see. Yeah. Um, Brian's got probably a little bit more gun building experience than I have. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll try to offer what I can to this discussion here tonight. Well, even considering that, um, there's a perspective here that we need to be aware of. And that's the everyday end user, because the reason we're doing most of this, the everyday carrier, the everyday user that's a huge demographic and they might not have the resources that everyone else has. So to be able to address their needs or to be able to address the things that we've observed that might be lacking or that might be a trend, I think would be hugely beneficial. Yeah. And so, so I, I so I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, probably on the competition side, your regular co uh, competitors probably aren't running into the same issues as everyday carry person. Cause in order for competition to work it, the gun needs to, it needs to work. And, yep. and people see their immediate results and a match. I might be carrying some gun for years and years and years and never use it. And I have no idea that the, the rounds are welded into the uh, magazine. Brian. Yeah. My one claim to fame is I inspired Riley Bowman to buy two, two wheel guns. Nice. That was the, <laughs> that was the magnum opus of all my, Hey dude, I got a model 14. I'm like, Oh yes. Anyway, no side note. Well, Brian uh, and I spent quite a bit of time in the swimming pool at our Airbnb <laughs> in Vegas uh, during shot show this last year, just talking about who knows what. And, uh, definitely revolvers were a topic of discussion. And I said, you know, I need to get me a few more, uh, of those. And so Brian did assist in uh, acquiring a couple. And it's unfortunate that they're and they're slowly coming back into in vogue, but so many people immediately see it and go and discount it and think, no, that's dumb. I can do I can do the uh, the Hellcat or the three sixty five. That's so much better. But is it again yeah. focusing what our mission is for pocket carry? I'd much rather have a spurless revolver, small revolver. The access is so much easier. Hey, perfect. And with the semi-auto, okay. Actually, I take that back. There is like the uh, Tomcat Beretta Tomcat works nicely for me in a pocket. However, anything where the slide profile is going to be taller, depending on the pants I'm wearing in the pocket, there may be some uh, uh, resistance. So before we really get into the, the nuts and bolts, meat, potatoes, and all those other 
ways to describe this. Let's discuss what makes a defensive weapon a defensive weapon. What makes it different than everything else people have? Because a lot of people have their designated, okay, this is my carry piece and these are my fun guns. And it's possible to have fun guns that people may consider to be defensive. Uh, Before we officially started, or maybe I said it, I don't remember. I'm on graves. I don't have enough sleep. Any of these could be uh, considered uh, defensive as long as they're maintained and we know that they function. Um, What do you guys think? So what makes a defensive weapon a defensive weapon? Here to go first, Riley. Sure. Um, Well, you know, I was thinking about my own equipment in that was it back in 2017 2018 somewhere i don't know i need to go back and check my logs but at one point i switched over from clocks which are well known and well regarded as defensive weapons of course they've also seen use in the competitive environment as well although they're they certainly seem a little bit more optimized for defensive use than say competition and we certainly see that in today's competitive environment where the Glocks are, you know, they've lost quite a bit in terms of their uh, prevalence in the competitive circles. But um, I switched over to the P320 after months of testing and trying things out, evaluating uh, that as, a, as an option for me compared to the Glocks I'd been using for, for years and uh, decided, yeah, the P320 was, was the one for me. What makes something a defensive gun, I suppose? Well, I mean, I look at it a lot for me in that my defensive guns are actually not all that different from my competition guns uh, other than my competition guns are using maybe, say, an optic like a Romeo 3 Max that's certainly not optimized for defensive use. It's a little bit more fragile as an optic, but is certainly optimized for competitive use, nice, big, huge, you know, very clear window in the optic, but not so much in terms of uh, robustness of the frame, but, um, but almost everything else about the gun for me is, is, is the same way, same setup as my defensive guns. Cause I want both of them to be reliable, uh, obviously accurate. The performance needs to be there. Uh, I do have lighter triggers in my competition guns than, than the defensive ones. So, you know, if I was summarizing it, I I want the same thing in both kinds of guns for the most part, especially on the reliable operation side of the equation. That's a must have no matter what. Uh, And I think nobody wants an unreliable gun, no matter the purpose, even as a fun gun, you know, an unreliable gun isn't very fun. So, uh, but in defensive context, like it has to, has to work or you're going to find yourself in trouble. Now, if we're speaking honestly though, and this is, this is something I've thought about a fair amount. How many rounds are typically fired in a defensive encounter, particularly like say a civilian one. I'm going to approach it from that angle uh, since that's more my world. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to throw out an exact number, but it's not very many. Right. You know, we're talking anywhere from one to five, six, seven, maybe. Certainly there's exceptions to everything. What guns are capable of at least sustaining half a dozen rounds? Oh, well, probably almost any. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but there's something to be said about having confidence in your equipment 
Uh, and, and, you know, that confidence comes from using it regularly. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I probably, well, post COVID probably average more like somewhere between 15 and 20,000 rounds a year fired through my pistols pre COVID was probably more in the order of 30 ish. Um, some more, some less in certain years, but you know, having that amount of volume of fire through your equipment, you definitely become intimately familiar with it. Uh, you learn the nuances, you learn, you know, what needs to be fixed or replaced when, and you learn a, a, a level of respect and, and confidence in that equipment because you know, it's going to work because you're actually using it on a regular basis. At the same time, regular use also means that it's taking a beating and, you know, so you got to be making sure you're actually staying on top of that. A uh, few, you know, several years ago, I switched to where I, I made sure I had duplicates of every gun and certain guns were more training guns and other guns were more reserved for uh, carry use or, well, I have a primary competition gun, which is the one that is, is what I shoot at major matches. And the backup gun is what gets shot at the locals or for practice, um, that kind of thing. You know, so similar approach there as well on the defensive side where I've got duplicate guns that for carry and for training purposes, but I didn't always have that. And that's a, that can be a high bar, uh, for some gun carriers and gun owners to, you know, they're already thinking, well, gosh, uh, do I buy this, uh, $300, you know, cheap gun that I feel like I can afford right now. Um, or do I spend, you know, five fifty, six hundred, seven hundred on a more trusted platform? And then you say, well, probably not a bad idea if you're going to shoot a lot, which you should yeah. to have a duplicate of that. Well, golly, now we're, now we're doubling that, uh, that price. And again, I was kind of hoping I could only spend $300. So, there's a lot there obviously to take in. Um, and not everything, not everything has to be done all at once, but you know, we, we certainly know from others experiences, we have a pretty good sense of certain guns that have a reputation for, for performance and reliability, um, durability, consistency, uh, particularly on the quality control side of things. Um, and so, you know, that's the safe bet for sure is going with something that's, that's known. Um, but I've also seen people that carry guns that shoot them a lot and therefore they, they know they work. They've, they've vetted that yeah. particular gun for themselves and they're familiar with it and its nuances and its maintenance schedules and they're taking care of it. And so while that might not necessarily be the brand or the particular gun that I would choose, um, Hey, it works for them and, and they, they know how to keep it running. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but um, yeah, I guess I'll throw it to Brian or throw it back to you, Matt. That, that's just some, some thoughts that came to mind as you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no, that's great. Brian. Well, I kind of define uh, a defensive handgun as the handgun that I have when I need to be defensive with it. Ah. I don't really put, a whole lot more, I, I, not to sound like jaded or heady about it. Um, there you go. You just make it so simple for me. Thank you, Brian. It's just, up now. yeah, to, to me. And I have, and then I have what I call preferences, right? So right now we're in the golden age of holsters, of ammo, of 
pistols, right? I mean, what what did Nils win with? A was it called a Chanik or Jan? I mean, can I, we were can- buying those for like three hundred bucks a couple of years ago, and he goes and wins a major match with it. So we're obviously in a golden age of like manufacturing and availability and things like that. So to me, it's when it's more about what do I select as a defensive pistol than what is a defensive pistol, right? Uh, And for me, it kind of, there's like three things that I'm really, um, I'm really critical about. And one is, is it available? Right. And I know that sounds, that may sound uh, a bit jaded, but how long has the Glock been in production? How long has the Beretta 92 been in production? How many, you know, SIG 226 variants are there out there? It's still in production, but it's, there's variants. There's a lot of variants, right? Uh, so I kind of stick with those two platforms because it doesn't matter what era they were made. You can pretty well part source them, right? You can keep them, keep them maintained. Uh, you know, how many guys bought a Hudson, right? Like, I, I, I wish I did. I, I think it's a cool concept, yeah. right? But for a defensive yeah. pistol, I go, hmm. Yeah. Good luck if you break it. Right. Um, hope you know a good machinist. Uh, I can't remember who it was like Dave Spaulding or somebody said you can find parts for a Glock 19 in every gas station bathroom in America. It's like uh, Clint Smith said Cairo, Egypt to Cairo, Illinois. There's a Glock 17 somewhere. Right. Like, so I kind of try to keep it within those boundaries somewhere. Like, And then I do carry revolvers pretty regularly. I carry a pocket revolver, which I carry one. I have one um, that it's an old model 36 that my dad gave me. That's hammer bus. So one, uh, the one of Riley and I discussed at length that at uh, the pool and shot show, you know, and, but I don't really, but that gun, I mean, it's serviceable. It's replaceable. I can find parts for it. If it goes down, if it craps out, I've, I've got a, I've got a good stash of parts for, for maintaining it. Um, so I've seen a lot of those trends come and go with other platforms, but once they're ironed out, it's kind of, what do you prefer? You know, uh, I, so I don't really get too in the weeds with that. The other things, the other things that are really critical to me are accuracy. Um, and not just accuracy, but accuracy with a variety of ammunition, especially if you're in the institutional agency type thing. Uh, one year you might have 124 plus P the next year you might have 147 bonded something. And then two years from now, some, somebody gets the bright idea that, Hey, we need to go with a 115 plus P plus bonded. So it needs to be flexible across that, that span. And I look at about with iron sights, about four inches at 25 yards is plenty. It's good. Um, it shocked me when I got into the civilian circles to realize that not many people shot at 25 yards unless you forced them to, right? Or, and that was a huge deal. Um, and then, so accuracy with with most of your, your major brands of ammunition. Uh, and then preference, you know, it's, but uh, if you notice, I didn't say 19 or 2011 anywhere in there. Uh, and, I, and I don't, I'm not like biased against them, but 
are they user serviceable? It's because, I, I mean, I've got the, the armor issued Glock punch in there that I can do every operation to that gun that I need to. Uh, and also that armor's punch works really good on a SIG uh, P320 as uh, Riley's uh, cohort, John Paul, when he was in town, I actually armor serviced his P. It was that the X carry that he was carrying, got him set up with some good quality defensive ammo and, and, and uh, went completely through his gun just to make sure that it was up to the current spec. Um, and it was a good conversation piece while we we're having dinner, we we're sitting there stripping his gun down and all that. And it was so, uh, but that's kind of the big ones for me is availability service, user serviceability and accuracy. So cool. That wasn't too wordy. Yeah. So one of the things Riley brought up that I appreciate that I learned from uh, Chuck Haggard was the idea of having multiples and multiples of my carry multiples of my, of my, if possible, my duty gun or whatever. And one of the huge benefits to me is I can have, I don't necessarily have to have one thing. Uh, this is my competition gun. This is my carry gun. This is my duty gun, but I can spread out some of the wear, or I always have, if something does break or if something for some very strange reason goes into evidence, I still have a gun. And to me, that always made a lot of sense. Um, also one of the things that Riley was talking about with concerning that is, okay, so this is the gun I want to get. It's going to cost X amount of dollars. Let's say it's going to be 500 to incorporate this concept of having a double means I'm going to double that investment. Not only that, this whole process isn't just a one-time purchase because we're constantly involved. Uh, what do you call it? Investing in ourselves. So not only is it financial cost. So we have the gun, we also have the support equipment. We have the ammunition. We also have the training, training costs. We also have the time investment. So we have time costs, money costs, this whole thing, the lifestyle costs money. And so if you think, yeah, I'm going to buy this and this is it, then I'm done and not have any training. Don't shoot regularly. You're setting yourself up for failure. I just pointed at a random thing. I don't know what it was this right here, you know, in this general vicinity. Um, so part of this also, like what Riley said was, and the more you use it, the more familiar you are, familiar you are. And as things wear, things get replaced. Speaking of where, what are things that you guys are looking for? Assuming that people are actually using their guns. So going through a couple classes, hell going through one class, it's not a bad idea to inspect your gun. After a year, it's not a bad idea to inspect your gun. What are, to, in your guys' opinions, what are service level inspections and uh, things people can do? And at what point should it go to a gunsmith or armor? Well, I'll, I'll take that one first, I guess. Uh, you know, the, I, I like to think of this from an outward-in approach. So let's start on the outside of the gun and uh, work our way internally from there. So whether it's an iron sided gun or an optic equipped gun, uh, start with making sure, I mean, that's a critical component. You can't put rounds on target if your sighting system is not in proper uh, order. So sights come loose all the time. We see it all the time. Uh, you know, the last 
primary and secondary training summit. I remember like that weekend, there was like three or four guns that had sites, you know, either front sites that launched themselves off rear sites that drifted out of uh, dovetails and you know, that kind of thing. And, and I've seen it in classes uh, throughout the years as well and had sites on, on guns I own that have come loose. So uh, start with your sites, make sure on a regular basis as you're doing an equipment check, which, you know, guess another way to approach this is what do you do on a daily basis? What do you do on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly basis? Well, every day the gun I'm carrying is checked. Uh, my gun's red dot equipped, you know, that I carry most of the time these days. Uh, before it goes in the holster, before it goes on my waistband, is that red dot, you know, I got witness marks on the screws. Are the witness marks still in place? Are, you know, are those screws, have they, have they drifted or moved on me? Um, is the optic powered on? Is it function? All that, right? Is it at the brightness that I need it to be at for the situation, the conditions, the environment I'm going to find myself in most likely, et cetera. Um, and again, making sure my iron sights back up irons, including everything is as it should be. Uh, making sure that it, that it functions, uh, doing function checks regularly is, is a good thing to do. Making sure the trigger functions as it should, making sure it resets as it should, making sure any manual safeties that I use function as they should, uh, and so on and so forth. Double checking your magazines, including loaded ones and unloaded ones, uh, inspecting for rust. Uh, you know, I carry a gun on a daily basis, and particularly if you're in a human environment, uh, you're well, you're going to probably develop some rust at some point on some components somewhere on that gun. Um, so yeah, start with the obvious stuff, the external stuff first, work your way in. So from there, things that uh, need to be replaced on a regular basis are any of the springs. Recoil springs, pretty commonly, going to be about a 5,000 round wear point, you know, some, some less, some possibly more, but usually 5,000 rounds is a pretty good rule of thumb. So making sure you're replacing those as you need to regularly. Other springs in my guns, uh, whether it's a trigger reset spring, a sear spring, that kind of thing are gonna get replaced typically about every 10,000 rounds, particularly for my defensive guns. I'll, I'll say that much. I'm a little bit, mm, partly because my, comp my competition guns get shot as much as they do. I probably am a little bit less stringent on maintenance standards with the competition guns, uh, meaning that, yeah, there's times I've certainly have run them for well beyond 10,000 rounds, probably even 20,000 rounds. And I'm like, Oh wait, when's the last time I checked the sear spring or the trigger reset spring and that kind of thing. Uh, but those, they need to be done periodically. Uh, some of these components may be different or more specific uh, or, or have a different schedule depending on the particular gun that you use or carry. So you, you want to look up that information if you can. But as a general rule of thumb, I found that it works pretty good for about 5,000 rounds for recoil springs, 10,000 rounds for every other spring throughout the gun. And I'd say that too for uh, magazines, uh, magazine springs. That's something that gets overlooked. Uh, kind of an old school way of checking for magazine spring where would be to, well, depending on the magazine and magazine spring, uh, some people have been known to pull them out and check their length. Uh, I, a lot of times will check whether the magazine uh, follower is actually still pushing up the, uh, the, the slide stop in a positive manner. If it looks sluggish at all and replace it, 
Uh, or if it's not a lock in that slide back at all, yeah, definitely replace it at that point. If you start having malfunctions and you think it's magazine related, well, replace magazine spring. But with my competition guns, I replace them every off season, uh, once a year. Uh, probably not a bad idea to do that with my with my carry guns. Um, but uh, so a lot of things to look at there. Uh, extractors. Uh, again, you may have a 10,000 round cycle or 20,000 or whatever your manufacturer recommends for those. Um, but you could also visually inspect that and also, you know, feel it with your fingernail and see, see how sharp and, and square that extractor edge is that's responsible for extracting rounds from your chamber. Um, so those are, those are, I think, some simple things we can start with that don't necessarily require gunsmiths or armor level uh well maybe some of those things might depending on some of the springs but uh recoil springs certainly you know just about anybody should be able to figure that out extractors typically aren't you know too difficult depending on the gun brian didn't mention 1911s and 2011s because i i agree with him that those are that that's a a a gun design that is a little bit more uh shall we say requires a little bit more experience to keep them. You know, I mean, how many of you that have a 1911 or 2011 know how to tune the extractor, right? Or even know if that's, if your extractor is functioning like it should. So uh, those are definitely things you want to know. I want to point out for people that might be new to the podcast or that haven't listened before, the round counts, Riley's bringing up 5,000, 10,000, 30,000. These aren't made up numbers. This, this is real. So the average, uh, the average gun owner probably isn't going to shoot that much in their lifetime. They might buy a gun. They'll, they'll shoot maybe a, a magazine, maybe a box, and then it gets put away forever. With, with, this, with this kind of use, there's actually wear. It's a mechanical thing. And with this wear, there are parts that are essentially disposable that, you know, yeah, Magazines, it's, it's a wearable item. Uh, springs magazines, springs in general, it's a wearable item. So things will wear down. They will need replacement. So if something, this is real talk. This isn't just making up, yeah, 100,000 just shot last week, just yesterday. No, this is, this is over a realistic round counts with people that actually shoot and train. Brian? Yeah, I, uh, I kind of subscribe to, and I know it, it sounds terrible, but uh, on a duty slash carry gun, when that sucker gets up around 5,000 rounds, I give somebody a really good deal on it and I roll the money into the next one. Uh, just because, and I mean, I know that sounds like, well, that's the guy that buys a new car every year. No, I drive the wheels off a car, right? Uh, magazines is something I'm really peculiar about because I grew up under the Brady bill and I remember people well, I need a follower for a G17 and I need a base plate for this and, and the inordinate amounts of money they were spending on them. I, I, I buy these. Okay. I'll skip a DoorDash pizza once a month and buy, buy one every paycheck. Uh, I have so many of these in Beretta 92 mags. It's obscene. And if one has a malfunction, I track to the magazine, it gets taken apart and thrown in the trash. And it never sees the light of day again. And I put a new one in it for my carry gun. You can I mean, send me 
your trash mags, just so you know. <laughs> I wouldn't I'll do that to you because if it ended up in your gun and it malfunctioned when you needed it the one time you might need it in your life, I couldn't live with that. Well, those, you'd those be are- like, it's got his mark on the bottom and it failed and I'm shot. Yeah, like uh, I was in Ernest Langdon's class. I had a magazine. I tracked down a magazine that, that was having problems. I walked over, pulled the follower out of it and stomped it into the pavement and threw it in the trash. And somebody was like, and I'm like, dude, Oh no, that's real. It ain't worth your life. Um, you know, those, those mags are not, you know, Metgar 18 round mags that they ship with those. Now they're what, like 20 bucks or something. It's like skip pizza night, bro. Like it's serious business, right? Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm big on the, 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 the Glock stuff these days. And I'm not saying, don't do that with a 320 or whatever, uh, or that, I mean, I've carried 320s too. And I, the same thing holds true mag fails. And I know it's a mag. I'm not going to waste my time tra- tracking down the problem. It goes in the, it, it, like, I will take a saw and cut it in half. So that never happens again with that. That never sneaks into my stuff. Uh, on these, I keep three, three of them because on duty, I'm required to carry one in the gun and two on my, my belt. Uh, I keep three of these in the package and every year when I go to an annual qualification, uh, I empty the ammunition that's in like this one, it's loaded with gold dots. That stuff goes into the berm through a target and I break out three brand new magazines. I load them. I make sure every one of them works. I load them again off to the races we go. Uh, and I know that that may seem a little OCD, uh, but the other the other aspect is uh, like on armor checks and armor maintenance. I do the armor inspection on my own gun every year. Uh, after about three years, when it starts needing parts replacement, it's time for somebody to get a really smoking deal on that gun, and uh, I'll go find another one uh, because to me, it's not worth the risk. Um, the other thing that I do, and I'll. I'll I'll preface this with, I told uh, our mutual acquaintance, Jacob, about this procedure, and he had never, he, he was like mind blown about it. I never take my gun apart, period, if it's something I'm carrying, unless I can certify it after it's been taken apart. So you see, and this is common with cops, you see them go to the range, they shoot an in-service qual, they strip their gun down, they clean it, they put it back together and go to work. I'm like you just spent 25 to 50 rounds of ammunition, making sure your gun works. And now you're going to completely tear it apart and hope that it works the next time you use it. Um, so I I'm very, I don't, I'm, I'm very OCD about those types thing of, of things. And a lot of that is born out of, you know, I competed in the 1911 era and I had to learn to maintain and service my gun constantly. And now that we have reliable polymer guns, I just don't even take the, the risk of making a major parts replacement. And if I do, and I decide to keep that gun and not roll that, roll that money into the next one, it goes in the gun safe and it never gets carried again. It just turns into an example that's in there to make sense. So, I mean, I like, and I'm not saying the way that I do it is, is absolute or right or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's just a tick I have because I've seen a lot of people in a lot of bad situations and I've seen guns take a 
have some real anomalous stuff happen um, at the one time they're needed. So I, I just try to keep that as a uh, perpetuating uh, thing with me. Now, when I retire and my income takes a hit, yeah, we might cobble together some guns because I'm not going to be in the prisoner taking business anymore. It's going to be purely the, it's all about me kind of carrying. So what's the point, you know, then I'll, I'll maybe I'll spend some time putting magazines together or shipping them to Riley. I don't know. <laughs> so, so let me reinforce what you just said about after you qual and then taking everything apart, cleaning and put it back together. Now I have personally seen and experienced exactly that where the gun was taken down. It was a, not only a field strip, but they also took out pins and they put the pins in, in, in the wrong order. Guess what? Ran into malfunctions because of that. Mm-hmm. So that brings me to a topic for me, the, uh, the, the frequency of my cleaning now, not upkeep and now cleaning upkeep and, and inspections can be completely different things. When I'm putting on a gun, I'm going to make sure everything's working. It's loaded, all that kind of stuff that my sights aren't moving. I'm going to physically touch mm. things and make sure, Oh good. This isn't moving. Cause this is my duty gun. Clearly. Um, I'm also going to grab, I'm going to, I'm going to touch my optic, make sure that there's not a wobble because that can happen. Um, just, just wear and tear. So I'm going to check out all that, make sure it works. After I shoot, I don't clean the gun. Now I will clean the gun. If I start feeling, okay, it's getting sluggish. We're, we're, I'm feeling sluggish. The slide isn't moving as nicely as it normally does. I'm going to take it apart, wipe it down, clean it, do whatever I need to do. Sometimes it is like with my ARs. Sometimes it's take the bolt out, wipe it down, re-lube, put it back in, good to go. I don't need a, I don't need a complete clean. Some of these guns, I, I, that's basically what my normal routine is. Sometimes I'll, if I'm, especially if I'm bored, I'm going to, I'm going to clean, I'm going to watch a show and clean and it's enjoyable, get high off the, off, off the fumes. Um, but the necessity of cleaning after every time you shoot, that's putting unnatural wear on the gun. So if we, okay. So, I would, I don't know about, well, okay. I do know about Brian. I was never, I was never in the military. My understanding is a lot of people have concerns or they were complaining about weapons in the military because they were so, they were, they were, they were so loose and so wobbly and they were so worn out. It's because of excessive cleaning. It's because of excessive everything. Normal people shouldn't be treating weapons like that. These are tools. How often are you taking apart your engine and scrubbing down every single part? You don't. Yep. Oil change. Riley. Yeah. And, and you're back on the road, you know yeah. I mean? This, so the example Brian gave, of, you know, cops doing their qual- qualification to going home, cleaning the gun because you have this obsessive compulsive need to always have a clean gun, uh, which speaking of military. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't in the military, but I know that is a dogma that is, uh, certainly uh, preached uh, in the military, you know, partly because you're sitting around and waiting, you know, just to hurry up at some point. And what are you going to do around waiting? It's also, hel- it's also helping you get to know the gun better. And then yeah. I understand that. Yep. Yep. But uh, this is why I don't 
really believe in carrying a clean gun because I'm like you, I'm like Brian, uh, I, I, I don't carry a gun unless I know it works and you know, it works when you've actually fired it. And when you fired it, you've gotten it maybe just a little bit dirty. Maybe it's a fair amount dirty. I'll tell you every one of my guns, they may be dirty to some extent, but they are definitely well lubricated. I know that. And I know that they function. Bingo. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You hit that one on the, you, you just cracked that one over the back fence, dude. Yeah. They may be dirty, but they're well lubricated. Yeah. And uh, you gave me some flashbacks when you started talking about military maintenance. And I can remember when I became an NCO, I I remember thinking, are we doing this just to keep these kids occupied? Uh, And then I think some of that after 20 years of sustained combat, some of that dogmatic stuff went away uh, from, from my, buds that were were in uh you know during the the whole gwat thing uh they were like you know we kind of got to the point where it was like hey we do, we need them lubricated they need to work uh and we don't need to have an obsessive amount of maintenance but we do need to make sure that all the parts are intact and it's 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 uh serviceable and functional right uh, that's not to say that once or twice a year, they're not still having to do what we used to call IG clean inspector general. And, and I came at, I came in the army at an era when there hadn't been a whole lot of combative situations going on. And that became one of the things that they used to really lean on the younger troops about. Uh, you, you had to be so obsessively clean with your your weapon system and don't put oil on it because that 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 causes debris to get in there and i was like uh this is crazy and even granted i i had grown up in a gun show right so or a gun shop so i was like that's ridiculous man i just saw a uh uh, a, a question come in or a statement on the uh, chat there. It said oil versus grease on carry guns, oil. Don't put grease on anything in a carry gun. Well, if we think about it also, just, just to beat this horse a little bit more, um, firearms are, it's a mechanical tool. There are moving parts in order for it to function. Does it need to be clean or does it need lubrication? Yes. Moderately clean, excessively lubricated. <laughs> That's kind of the, there was a really good video um, that I think Larry Vickers did at Gunsight several years ago where they had some like Rotella T tractor oil and they submerged an M4 and they submerged a Beretta 92 and something else. And you know, it was like to bust the myth of over, over lubrication. Right. And they like dunk these guns and shoot them and make just this bloody mess. Right. Uh, but the point of it was, and I mean, there's sand blowing. I mean, it's Arizona. Right. And uh, the whole purpose of that was to show, Hey, look, these guns are dirty, but they'll run lubricated. Yeah. Now, if you have a good balance of it's moderately clean and it's, and it's well lubricated in the right places, then, you know, the, the, the myth of over, over lubrication to me means you get it on your clothes 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like as long as you're not like sitting in a puddle of oil, but keep the gun lubricated. I mean, and go from there. But uh, the grease question was really good. Now there's certain guns that I do use grease on and only in very limited, small amounts. Uh, that would be your AR 15 M four platform, the trigger sear and hammer pins where those parts ride on those, those will get grease. Uh, Beretta 92 hammer fired guns, the pin that the hammer rotates on, it's pretty well, it's pretty well captured. It's pretty enclosed. So I'll usually put a, a, a light touch of grease on those to keep those, uh, those lubricated, but all the other bearing surfaces get, uh, get a good oil. So hopefully, uh, Brad, hopefully that answered your, I don't know if it's a statement or a question. He put no. a period. On so what it, he said was like oil versus grease on carry guns. You don't put grease in your car or grease in your engine. Oh. I should have wrote, read the second half because he makes a fine point. But you use grease in in uh, enclosed surfaces, you know, your rear, you know, your transfer case, your uh, rear axles, differential and stuff like that. Guns are open. Yeah, they're, they're an open system. And that's what I, I mean by like yeah. on yep. the Beretta. That it pin. has a a hammer pin that's pretty well enclosed in there. So it's not getting a whole lot of debris in it. Yeah. So that, that'll get a light dose of grease. Uh, the trigger pin maybe on occasion. Uh, One of the things that I learned from Chad Mercer that I really liked uh, when it, when we're talking about grease versus oil was grease picking up particulates and not allowing it to, whereas oil will let the particulates go away and gather them and, flush them out the particulates and grease can turn into an abrasive and put an abrasive in there now we're wearing out the gun prematurely even faster i thought oh that's that's an interesting point do you want to you want to hear a quick aside on the 1911 yeah uh and grease uh there used to be a product out there that i said it smelled like dirty socks it's still mm. made and it was a really popular gun grease years what ago. It, what does it taste like uh, i don't know that no. but uh but the, the first word of the name sounded like a popular game, Tetris. Uh, but that particular grease um, was really, it, their initial marketing was kind of like, hey, this is a lubricant for your, your gun and it's a preservative and all these things and it's wonderful. I used to put that in 1911s when I had finished a slide to frame fit and go shoot it Be, for two reasons. One, I could hold the gun center chest at like a retention position and I could look down and watch the round pass up the magazine and up the feed ramp because it would slow the slide travel down so much. Yeah. And number two, you're getting that powder carbon debris in there and it's doing like the final lap on the slide to frame. That's cool. Now, and then I would spend an inordinate amount of time cleaning that stuff out. So uh, but that is just a little one for your G whiz file there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfect example. Matter of fact, I kind of like it. Um, that being said, so speaking of which, where is it on right about there is a chambers night fighter 2011 that went thousands of rounds without cleaning. It did get a wipe down. It did get uh, a lube on occasion. The reason I was able to do that is it is a well-made gun. 
with other things, I can't do that as much. That being said, though, I can do it with a Glock. I probably could do it with a 320. I can do it with a lot of things. But yeah, with, with, with the higher end 1911s, they, okay, so you're the 1911, you are one of the 1911 guys. Um, yeah, there's the possibility of being more finicky. So for people carrying them. So that actually is almost a segue to what I was thinking was, there was a, a new 2011 that was recently released. 2011s are kind of being adopted by more people and it's kind of, they're getting some attention as a defensive everyday carrier duty gun. And there are, there's a new one that was recently was released, which can be a viable option. It just might need some, some work and some tuning and some, this and that, the difference between that and my chambers or my staccato is price. And those, the staccato and the chambers and the other stuff, they're, they're running without needing to take I, I don't need to add the additional the step of, okay, I need to work on it to make it to work, make it work. Or I don't need to send it off to Brian to, Hey, fix this. I want it to actually run. Uh, what are some of the issues with some of some, some of these, some guns that need a break in period or that need some of this work? How are, how are, how are people able to identify this without using social media? So, okay, obviously you go to the range, you shoot it and it doesn't work and you go, Oh, no worky. That was what I was going to say. But, yeah. Um, but there again, you have to qualify that a bit because if you go buy some Tula steel cased ammo, that's off the shelf at your local gun range, that's polymer or lacquer coated casings. And you're running that in an exceptionally tight chamber. Well, you might, it, that's, it's kind of like the Chuck Haggard saying, it, you know, when he was talking about, well, pepper spray doesn't work. Well, did you spray it on their leg? I mean, come on. You got to like, you got to qualify that statement a bit. Just like people saying that about nine mil. Well, where did you hit them? Yeah. Or, well, gut shot. They didn't stop. Okay. Yeah. Shot him in the fat roll. Yeah. Uh, saw that movie anyway. Uh, but with like, for instance, the prodigy, when I bought that gun, I had no expectation that it would run. Mm -hmm. And my experiment with that gun was, is it viable or is it with very minimal input? Am I able to make that run? And the answer was yes. On the four, two, five, the five inch model. I don't know anything about it on one. And to me, there's a reason that Colt released the nine millimeter 1911 pattern guns in a commander 4.25 uh, hmm. slide length and barrel. And it wasn't by accident. Um, you know, everything old is new again. Yeah. So, uh, but when I looked at that gun, I was like, Oh, okay. The, 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 the bones of this gun are good. The organs are not so great. They leave a lot to be desired. Uh, guy like me buying that I go, Okay, hammer sear, you know, disconnect, uh, reshape the reshape the firing pin stop, reshape the uh, disconnect notch, do this, do that, tune the extractor, uh, check the chamber dimensions, open them up if need be, set the break over ankle on the feed ramp, done. How many people listening know what the heck I just said, right? Two, three, four, maybe a, a handful. Uh, now let's back the bus up 15 years, 20 years, Brady bill sunset in that era, everything I just said, most of your gun people would understand exactly what I was talking about because it was a common thing then. Well, I can't, 
I can't get mags for my Beretta 92. So what's the next best thing? Oh, I get eight rounds of 45. I can, I carry the gun with the, the nicest trigger and this and make it my own. Right. Um, which is why I've expressed kind of the dangers of, we have now reintroduced a platform on a generation of people that have never had to do those things. So they have this predetermined expectation that that should work right out of the box. Well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I, Cause I can go and buy a Glock 19, a drop in barrel and comp and it's an MOS system. So I can just throw a dot on, I can change out the trigger and I can put on a uh, magwell. I don't need any tools. So what you just said is silly. No, I'm, I'm, I'm oh, saying I, that's what, that's what people are used to. Everything's right. plug and play drop in. Not so much with this. What you're describing is absolutely not. It's the opposite of plug and play. Right. Right. And I, I tell people like we had a couple people at the guardian conference, uh, a couple of people that are, have attended two years in a row now that are just like I've made friends with they're great people and they brought their prodigy. And I said, don't tell me what you don't tell me what you're having done to it. You bring it, I'll bring mine. We'll shoot them. And I want you to, then I want you to tell me what your gunsmith did to it. And they did. And it was every single thing that I had done to mine. And I was like, okay. The, and, and I walked through some of that on that Facebook live, but, um, but there again, we have a generation of shooters that they expect, Hey, I paid like $450 for this. It should work. And now I paid $1,400 and it doesn't when 20 years ago, that was the norm. That was, that was just the way it was. <laughs> it was either that, or you shot a polymer gun with 10 round mags and the mags kind of worked, you know? So. I don't know though. Um, I'm almost, and I'm just thinking about this as you're talking about it. I'm almost thinking if you have the money, what a cool way to learn the gun. Do it yourself. Yeah. You're going to run into issues. You're probably going to break stuff. You're going to probably double your investment just in tools. Absolutely. in tools, but, and, and, uh, and, and parts and, and do it yourself. What an awesome project that would be genuinely very cool. Yeah. And that was another reason I did that. I bought it at retail. I didn't wait for my dad's FFL to get it just because I wanted to see, okay, normal everyday gun owner, like what are the challenges going to be? And I got to be honest, they're on the 425 model. They're not all that super challenging, um, but there are some very specific things you need to know how to do. And we are in an era now where it is getting harder and harder to find the people that will share that knowledge with you. Um, or, you know, the availability of people that are willing to do that, that have done it for years. Think about this, the Brady bill set sunset 18 years ago. So if you were 10 years old, when the Brady bill sunset, you're what? 28 years old now, uh, there was a, when I got into 1911s, the bulk of the gunsmiths were 30 to 35 years old. They're dead. So talk, they're dead. They're well, they're maybe they're not dead, but they're retired or they don't want to do it anymore. Or they are gunsmiths that grew up in the era of polymer plug and play. Hey, I might have to shave a little bit of the barrel hood to get this to fit. 
moving on. Does that make sense? Like we, we you know, go find a revolver gunsmith now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dave Laubert. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Something like that. But, um, but they're just fewer and fewer and fewer. And there was a time you could pick up an, an American handgunner and the last three pages of ads were for guys that worked on 1911s, you know? Wait a minute. You a magazine? What? Paper magazine? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. I actually bought an American handgunner the other day. What? It was weird. Oh, speaking of which complete tangent. Yeah. Mad magazines no longer in, uh, no longer being published. That is just wrong. Neither is Playboy. Somebody told me it's all digital no, I, now. I guess I no. I mean, I don't think there's any Mad Magazine. Oh, I might be wrong. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Um, okay, so we've talked about a potential cool project. And genuinely, it would be cool. Not everyone's going to have the patience. Uh, most people are going to want to buy a gun and have it work right out of the box. So that means you probably, if you want a 2011, you're probably going to need to spend a little bit more money. That being said. So what are things in your guys' opinions, if someone is new to firearms or they buy a new firearm, what are the processes that you guys take to ensure that this is something worth your time, money, and effort after you buy the gun? Riley, you take this one. I got to take a short reprieve. Yeah, you actually uh, broke up a little bit for me, Matt. It, it may have just been my connection on my end, so I didn't quite capture the the whole question. So, so basically... Um, <laughs> For someone getting a brand new gun, what's your process to not, I'm not going to say break in, but what do you do to instill your confidence in it to ensure that this is meeting your needs? Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I've kind of used this uh, methodology where if it's, if the gun they've bought is one that's of a known quality um, run, 500 rounds through it and that's probably even maybe even more what you technically need but run 500 rounds through it and make sure that there's there's no malfunctions in the in that 500 rounds both in terms of you know not just practice ammo or range ammo or you know standard 115 grain fmj but but also like a like probably about 100 rounds of what you think you're going to carry in that gun for defensive ammo as well so, you know, that's, uh, again, when we talk about getting into something and, you know, you're, you're spending five, six, $700 on hopefully a decent quality gun, then you're probably dropping, oh, let's say probably two fifty on a case of ammo and maybe another hundred to 200 in defensive ammo just to go and, you know, so you're, you're a thousand bucks pretty much, uh, to, to buy a gun take it to the range, you know, whether you do that all in one trip or a couple of trips and verify a couple of things. Again, that number one, you get a solid 500 rounds through that gun that are reliably uh, functioning, uh, including, I'd say again, at least a hundred rounds of your defensive load, but also knowing where that gun prints on target. And if it's got adjustable sights, making sure you're actually sighted in for your defensive ammo, which is, something I think a lot of people like, I, you know, you forget what you don't know. And like, when I was a brand new gun owner, you know, and people just like assume that a gun comes from the factory that, that it's going to be sighted in for, you know, their ammo. And, and not only that, they don't realize that there's a difference between 
this ammo and that ammo, you know, this grain weight and that grain weight. Well, this is yep. plus P over here and that standard pressure. And they're all going to print somewhere differently on the target. So uh, we want to verify reliability, but also confirm side in or, or, or actually perform a side in and zeroing of that gun. If it is a gun of an unknown uh, or a lesser known reputation and quality uh, control level, then I I'd recommend at least a thousand rounds through that gun that again is, is basically hundred percent reliable before I'd feel reasonably comfortable putting it on my, on my waist. And you mentioned running your defensive load or duty load. Well, what a fantastic idea because it is possible. Certain guns aren't okay, except for a revolver revolvers for some reason, but uh, no, in some semi-autos 1911, for example, some hollow points might not feed. This right. is something you need to know before you need to press the trigger on the threat. You mentioned uh, uh, 500 rounds for a known quantity. In my opinion, the, the shorter the time span to shoot that 500 rounds, the better, because that's yeah. putting stress on the gun, which, okay. You know, some people, some people brag about, yeah, I've had this gun for six years and we're, I'm like at 5,000 rounds. Okay. Well, let's break that down. Yeah. How often are you actually, actually shooting it? Because you, higher round counts in shorter durations means greater stress on the gun, which proves its viability and its, uh, its durability. Ryan, what we're talking about are the steps to, or what you personally do to make sure that what you're about to carry a, a, a new gun or a new gun to you is worthy of that role. So what are things that you do personally? So Riley said five of, of, of a known quantity, yeah. 500 rounds, unknown quantity, or questionable a thousand rounds. Mm. And to include also uh, defensive ammo. Yeah. So when I, when I shift gears on a duty gun and I try to carry them about two to three years, but I've been on this, uh, this challenge lately of like, I'm going to carry one for a solid year and that's all I'm going to shoot in competition. That's all I'm going to carry. That's it. Like, and it's going to be a stock gun. There will be nothing done to it other than sights because to me, sights aren't a functional at are a preference, right? Yeah. Uh, as long as they're of reputable manufacture, right? So, uh, and the last the last two guns I've done that with was the P320, and then now I'm on the G45. Um, but before I started to carry that gun, I bought the gun, and every time I would go to have a range, like a, I do at very minimum, I know this sounds like crazy, but... Minimum, I shoot 40 rounds a month. I got a warm-up exercise that covers all the stuff in 40 rounds. Uh, I like to do that every other week, but sometimes with, you know, podcasts and belts and real work and all that other stuff, it gets gets pushed to the, be- to the, the back. Um, but I like to take the gun that I am bringing into the rotation, and I will not only put it through the 40-round warm-up, but I'll go over and shoot all your, like the test, the super test, just to make sure things are really dialed in 25 yards, uh, shoot some bullseye targets with it, stuff like that. Check the accuracy. And I do that with a hodgepodge. I have a bucket of ammo that has like mountain city ammo, federal, some Norma, some uh, like, it's just a mix of everything. 
that I'll just grab handfuls of that ammo and I'll see, okay, does it shoot everything pretty well? And it's funny you say 500 rounds because after about five to 10 range sessions of shooting a hundred to 150 rounds, okay, now we're ready to put it into, into service. So I never quantified the number, but generally it's, it's not less than 500 and it's, it lends more towards a thousand of unknown ammo. And then my last, the last thing I do to it is I, I strip it down. I clean it really good. That thousand ish, 500 to a thousand rounds. I don't hardly clean it at all. I just lube it. Um, and if I don't see major accuracy anomalies in there, I clean it. That'll be one of the few times that I punch the bore on the gun. And then I put about a mag or two of defensive ammo in it and see where it prints at 25 yards at 15 yards and at 10 yards. Cause I can deal with everything. Everything else yep. is kind of what you just point but, shoot, right? Well, not point shoot, I, but I know I'm, I'm, but I'm, 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 as long as it'll keep a B eight repair center yeah. uh, at 25, I'm good. All yeah. right. Moving on. Um, but I want to make sure that it's hitting to the sites with the defensive ammo. And I typically carry 147 grain ammo. So that makes it really simple is if I'm shooting to win a prize, it's 147 grain ammo. If I'm shooting to shoot inside of 10 yards, whatever, throw it in the mag and, you know, hope your gun doesn't blow up. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, so I am with Riley around, uh, around a thousand rounds on the, on the carry ammo thing. Um, I don't go way off into the weeds with how much of the carry ammo I shoot, like, you know, a hundred rounds or so maybe over, you know, and that's kind of the final checkpoint. And generally, you know, if I have some leftover ammo from the year before, that's that I'm still issued, that's what I will. Yeah. I'll certify the gun with, and then, you know, at, but, but I don't dive way off into the weeds with the defensive ammo. And I know that sounds crazy, but in my experience, your modern polymer guns, they're not real picky about most of your modern police loads. Does that make sense? Yep. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. No, no. Uh, plug and play. Yeah. When it, another side note, when I switched over to, uh, this, uh, P226R and 40 Smith and Wesson. That's one of two of the duty guns that I've carried that I still own. That ought to tell you something in 20 years. Most of them get eh, done. Yeah. Uh, the G45 will stay in the, in the stable, but, uh, but with that gun, uh, I watched when an, our agency or the agency I work for switched from uh, Winchester SXT to bonded golden saber Remington. And I watched Glock 22s just crash hmm. like one after another. Now this was in the era that they were, they had been in service long enough that they were starting to surpass that whole flex wear thing. Gen three stuff, you know, Gen three with weapon lights. And then that was coincidentally, that was the same time that we put weapon lights on the guns. Yep. And it was a, I'm talking, it was an epic crash. Yeah. And, I had switched over to the 226 about a year and a half before that, and my gun chewed all of it up. Tolerance and, stacking. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I didn't even see any noticeable accuracy or point of aim or point of impact difference. Uh, nothing that was worthy of, of changing the, it was like the, the 
golden saber 180 grain shot about an inch and a half higher at 25 yards. I was a PPC shooter at the time at 50 yards. It almost shot point of aim. Um, and then the SXTs did pretty much the same. So I was like, wow, there's now fast forward 20 years. It's probably not the case anymore. Not, not to that degree. Right. Um, we just, with the modern testing protocols, the ammunition companies are using and the gun companies are using, I haven't seen a crash like that in a long time or, you know, or a, a meltdown, I guess you would say of uh, gun ammo combination. I'm not saying they don't happen. I'm just saying that it's, it's not as frequent, you know, right about the time where it was gen three Glocks and weapon lights, people were figuring out all that. And you mentioned golden sabers. I was working for an agency where we were a SIG agency. Of course, we're not going to see any of these, those issues. And we were slowly getting Glocks. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Hey, Riley, I understand you might need to take off. Before you do, can we get some plugs? Can we get some final thoughts? I don't yeah, mean you yeah. plug us. You can plug us, but how about <laughs> I appreciate you having me on tonight. Uh, you know, I think it's a worthwhile discussion and, and a lot of things that people, uh, I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah. You could go you know, a lot deeper on, on certain things here, but, uh, um, yeah, you know, I mean, make sure the stuff you, that you carry works. Uh, that'd be my summary. You know, my final words, just like, make sure, do whatever you got to do to know it's going to work. Um, get out and shoot, practice, put rounds to your guns if you can, because that's one of the best ways to gather data on your equipment. Um, plugs, uh, you, you can find me, uh, my, my website's concealedcarry.com, uh, my personal training websites, uh, learning or learntrainshoot.com. Uh, you can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, just look up my name, you'll find me. And, uh, or check us out on the Concealed Carry podcast or, uh, or any of the other podcasts that are that our business is responsible for like Brian's and, and stuff. And so, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the, pretty much what I got going. I, I got to throw Riley a plug. Uh, Cause I'm pretty sure he made this, which is, which model of this is this. That, the, yes, that's, that's called a holster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, the, it's that's a declaration the declaration holster. Yeah. Yes. This has now risen to the top of my favorites for the G45 because it's so ridiculously simple and so ridiculously comfortable. So if you weren't going to product plug, I was going to product plug you right there. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, um, which, which is cool. I mean, because that's just that that particular model is optimized for uh, for the Pilster Enigma and just uses the one clip and like I can't get a single clip holster for me to work very well, just with the way I'm shaped. Um, I, I am, I would say that one of the things I think is kind of cool about what we've got going at KSG Armory, I, I guess I didn't mention that, which is a relatively new venture for us since we acquired that company in June. Uh, but we, we own all of the old Filster uh, classic or legacy series molds. Uh, so right now I'm carrying in the old school Filster classic holster uh, my P320 and, uh, yeah, we, we make those. So I'm, I'm just glad my bro, Eric Gelhouse was carrying an M and P, uh, when he stayed over here at my condo, because I'm pretty sure he would have left with this. Yeah, that's right. Like, oh, I want that. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, Eric. Cool. So what else? What else, Brian? Thanks, guys. Thanks, Riley. Hey, good to see you, man. Talk to you soon. Yep. See you. So, Brian, we're at a crossroads. We can stop now or we can continue and get bigger and better prizes. You have that much time left. Okay. <laughs> that I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I broke my rule for you tonight. So I have a rule. That, that you're is, not going to wear pants after? After seven. No, it's, no, it's, it's one glass of Buffalo trace period. And then, uh, you know, we start getting into gun guy talk and it's like, okay, I'll have a half of one. We'll yeah, it's, it's okay. And I know you got to work graveyard, so I'm not trying to rub that in your face. I'm wide awake now, mostly sort of I'm off tonight. So as soon as we're done here, I'm going to make sure all kids are in bed and then I'm probably going to edit video. Hooray. Yeah. So Glock said, and I, I just, man, this Brad cat, he's uh he's on it tonight. Glock said in one of my hey, Brad, do you just want to jump on? You, he, he's been on before. Never happened. They claimed it existed on the internet. Oh, I experienced it firsthand. Going through, as a matter of fact, even going through uh, firearms instructor school in 04. That's when I went. Yeah. And uh, oh, figures working. are working. So are we. So, and I'll and say. Brian's working it. Uh, so that, that that switch what i had a bad feeling about those guns from the get-go here's gen threes yeah uh here's why and i'll i'll go back in time a little bit uh i picked up g35 because i was a broke nco in the army and i could shoot uspsa limited uspsa limited 10 uh stock service pistol idpa enhanced service pistol idpa um Gosh, there was like several sports that that gun was competitive in, right? Yeah. Like out of the box competitive, uh, you know, with like a 165 grain. And I could go buy 165 grain Winchester white box at Walmart for like $11, 10, 11 bucks a box. Uh, and didn't have to reload. They shot pretty soft it, it, and you know, different times, right? This is 22 years ago, right? Um, I take that to a local match that Glock was set up at one of the reps says, Hey, let me see your G 35. He pulls it apart. He looks and he goes, Ooh, that's got the long locking block that needs to be replaced. I'm like, Oh, great. Now I'm going to, he says, no, here's the RA. I'll send it back to you in about three days. He's like, shoot the match, come over. He's like, I can take it or I can ship it for you. So I do get all the stuff like a week later, it shows back up and it's got a short locking block in it. Uh, fast forward two years, I'm in the police academy. First time we strip our G22s down, guess what locking block it has? The real long leg locking, which they were kind of common that they fractured. And now I'm not trashing Glock. I carry one to this day. Yeah, I don't. I don't have anything against the the whole deal. But uh, I make mention to one of the assistant range masters who was a friend of my dad's. I was like, hey. Uh, these are not recalled, but they have a voluntary product upgrade. Ah, whatever. I'm like, okay. Well, I see him walk in the office, make a phone call and come back out with this like wide eyed look. And he's like, don't worry about it. Just shoot him. It's okay. Um, and I watched people having 
malfunctions even then. Um, and we just played the tap rack game, right? It was like, oh, well, you limp wristed it. Oh, you did this. Oh, you did that. Oh, well, it's practice ammo. Uh, I saw that perpetuated a lot. And yeah. I don't think people were really keen that that platform was not really, they didn't beef anything up. It just, wasn't made for a 40. No. And uh, at the same time, like the guys shooting limited USPSA, it was dominated by STI and SV. Mm-hmm. Wide body forties with a long dust cover. That's what everybody was winning with, right? With a set of Bomars on it. Like that was the, that was the ticket, man. Um, and I had a, a friend of mine that was real into 2011s and I switched over to shooting 1911s. So uh, I had this friend that was real. And I was, I said, man, I ought to get a 40 in a single stack. And he's like, nope, nope, don't do that. I'm like, why is that? He goes, well, you don't hand load and it's, you know, it's kind of a, there's some voodoo witch science in there to make these guns run. And, um, and I said, well, give me, and he's like, well, if you don't have the feed angle set, right. And you stuff around back in the cartridge, that, that cartridge is a really high pressure cartridge. And I'm like, and then he shows me the numbers and I don't remember what they were, but he's like, you know, you're, you're looking at like almost a two, a 200% increase in pressure by moving that bullet back, you know, 50 thousandths in the cartridge or whatever. And I'm like, what's that mean? He goes, it means you blow the magazine out and bad stuff happens. Right. Um, and I'm like, these guns aren't set up any different than the nine millimeter versions. That's probably. And, uh, shortly thereafter, um, we switch ammo and the gun light thing happens all at the same time. And, it was staggering the amount of like of just stoppages I saw like staggering. Uh, and what we kind of like doing some informal, Hey, has your gun ever done that before? Oh yeah. It does it once in a while before the gun light. Mm -hmm. Just thought that was, you know, it's just part of carrying a gun, right? You got to learn how to clear it. I'm like, Ooh, no, 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 no. That's that generally indicates something is wrong with your, your pistol. But, um, but you know, the wheels of like bureaucracy turn slow. So I get it. Right. Um, and then I had friends that carried them that never had a problem with them. Like, did they shoot? Hey, that's a good question. Um, some of them were more avid shooters than others, but I'm in firearms instructor school. I'm running a single stacks or no, I was running a two, two, six because I had just picked that gun up. And I was going to break it in. So, Hey, what better time than mm-hmm. an instructor school high volume, right? I watched almost every one of them in that instructor school crash hard yep. and it was competitive. So I'm like, yeah, bet you wish you had a SIG too, huh? That's right. And, uh, it, anyway, so they got phased out. Um, and now I have shot some of the gen four, the ones that had the little wider slide and they were sprung different. Uh, and the only reason that, that the big reason I don't shoot 40 anymore is one, my elbows won't abide it. Mm. Uh, got chronic tendonitis from shooting 40 shot a lot of 40, uh, and two, the expense, you know, outside training, I paid my own dime for ammo and I'm like, it, it, it's, you know, a third more to shoot a 40. Um, and consequently the gen four G 35s and G uh, 22s were supremely accurate pistols. Every one of them I ever shot was just, just a 
freaking bullseye gun. But, uh, man, go through a three-day high-volume school with a 40, and you'll go, yeah, it's not bad. Nine yeah. millimeter. <laughs> so, But it doesn't start with a four. Uh, do you remember what the Glock solution to that problem was? Oh, God, I don't uh, – that's a rabbit hole. That's they a- added an additional what, coil to the spring where as opposed so it was was it like a 13 coil spring and now it's a 14 or something like that yeah and there were a lot of solutions and i mean not i get like the corporate side running a small business i understand like when you hit a snag it's like okay we're going to propose a solution um and there were a lot of solutions proposed and i i don't mean to like like i'm talking out of school here i mean i set first front row on a lot of that stuff and it was um well you need this recoil spring well you need that well you need a number then, whatever follower with a spring what was it also uh frame flex frame flex well if the frames are flex or unserved it, and yeah. on and on you go uh and to keep them running it was like the cost of replacing magazines every year and replacing recoil springs every 1500 rounds and re- you know times a thousand Okay, eight dollars doesn't seem like a lot until you times it by a yes. thousand. Um, Do you read Brad's comment, which is perfect, and I remember that. Not the first part, and oh, so basically he's talking about where he works, oh, and yeah. the, the last sentence is perfect. Glock blamed it on Streamlight because you're not using the Glock light or the mag followers. Yeah, I I remember it, there was several things, and I mean they're a company like every other company, right? Yeah. They, yeah. Their game is to make money. Yeah. They're, they're not in the gun building business. They're in the money-making business, right? They just happen to do that with guns. Uh, that is every gun company that is in existence, by the way, that's not them exclusively. So I've seen, uh, you know, and I've seen other guns have growing pains like that. Um, it, but there again, you, you got to think back to the era, you know, wasn't a lot of bonded ammo floating around, right? 40 was better than it just seemed to perform better than nine millimeter. It seemed to perform as well or better than 45. Um, so, and then, you know, I had buddies that were feds that were issued Glock 22s. They shot 155 grain gold dot. Go find a box of that now, right? Um, they never had problems. Like they, if they did, they were minimal. So, it was like, it was a really weird era, man. It was, uh, but and blame the leader of this. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I saw all kinds of that corporate corporate corporations meet bureaucracy and it was just a lot of headbutts. And, and, um, and like I said, I, and I was very averse to Glock for a long time after that. It just, just simply because of, uh, you know, I was young and, and, I was like, well, I got a gun that works. I got a, a 226. My agency allows me to carry that. That's the, it's a non-issue for me. Um, it more affected the people that weren't as engaged. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily blame the agency. I don't really blame the Glock. It's just like, there was just some bad juju that happened and it's, it's a, you know, it's like ancient history now. Right. Like, um, but it's, uh, it, it was definitely 
to me, that was like the last big thing that happened in the gun industry that like really changed this, the landscape that makes sense. Like that was the last, the last like gun ammo thing that happened that everybody was like, Oh, you can't just bolt lights on guns. Well, especially as large of a scale it was, Mm -hmm. it affected pretty much everyone. Yeah. And, I'll be the first to tell you, uh, they weren't the only guns that didn't that didn't work when you put a light on them. Hmm. Uh, they were just the most widespread. Prevalent? Yeah, they were the yeah. most most prevalent. Um, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, just because you put a light rail on something that's an existing product doesn't mean it's going to work right. Uh, but that was the last big innovation, and it inspired a lot of change with a lot of the gun industry. Um, and I mean, at that, in that era, even the ammo was, nah, it was okay. Nothing like what we have now. No. Uh, Especially performance wise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I had, I had a dear friend of mine that was a hardcore 1911 guy. Uh, and he bought a 1911 with a light rail. I don't remember what it was, Sig Kimber or something. It was, uh, gets in a shooting with three suspects and uh, basically is shooting hardball. I won't say the ammo brand. I don't want to poo-poo them. They make good stuff, but uh, yeah, maybe, uh, <laughs> but like they recovered projectiles in the street that you could have yeah. reloaded like, yeah. and, and yeah, Con- he survived the encounter. It was, it was all good. Uh, but that was really the first time that I, I had the epiphany that regardless of what you think the ammo will do and the magazine ads and all that, the best you can depend on for pistol ammunition, the best outcome you can hope for is that it performs like ball ammo. Yeah. Anything else? Is yes. So that's, Oh man, that's a rabbit hole. I didn't want to go to, but it's interesting with the, stuff about Glover right now. And I just happened to, I just released uh, or published an article talking about, okay, if you want to get to know your ammo, start with the baseline, know what ball does. When you know what full metal jacket does, then we go from there. You don't go, Oh, here's the coolest ammo. How do you know it's the coolest ammo without knowing what the testing is, what to look for, what everything, what the good stuff actually does. How can you say this, whatever is the best. Um, mm-hmm. and then, yeah. And then all the Glover stuff came out. Yeah. I carry, I carry, I carry a full metal jacket. Okay. Good for you. Um, but without having that reference, I, I like what you just said about it has to at least perform at that level. Uh, one of the things that I picked up and I I've been saying recently is sure we want expansion, but we need penetration without mm-hmm. penetration. We're creating flesh wounds. Yeah. And if you have penetration in the wrong spot, it's all for naught. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned on that last podcast, I'd seen, I, I, I don't have an accurate count someday. Maybe I'll go do the records for that, but it was something I, I worked nine of 11 years in an area that had a level one trauma center. Mm-hmm. So every gunshot victim, every cop that had a, had a gunshot wound, every, uh, every armed suspect that was subsequently shot, uh, gang member shooting and, and like all manner of caliber yeah. bullet. I mean, it just tons of stuff. Uh, 
all the people that were like, Oh, the 45 is the greatest thing ever. I saw, I can't tell you how many people shot with 45 hardball, uh, 44 mag, like just, I should have kept notes and wrote a book. Right. But I didn't hindsight again. But, uh, what I started to real put together from all of that is, uh, the showstoppers only happen about right here and about right here. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Everything else, the best you can hope for is like your blood, your ammo performs like hardball and it punches a hole through it. Yeah. Um, so well, it's, well, yeah, well, changed the way I trained too. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that should be step one with this whole thing is understanding, okay, what are our, what are your expectations with a firearm? Because if you think just waving it around is going to stop crime or, or stopping an assault or just shooting someone and it doesn't matter where they're hit is going to stop. No, because if that's the case, you're relying on something that is the psychological stop, which we have no control over. No. And I've, I've seen examples of those too. Uh, we had a real interesting one. My dad worked where uh, a liquor store clerk at, which oddly enough, the liquor store now is gentrified and it's like my favorite one, but, uh, but the clerk shot at a, at an armed robber and the guy fell like a, like a sack of potatoes. And about two minutes later, he comes back to consciousness, had no bullet wound. Oh, it scared him so bad. He passed out at the boom guy hits the floor. It's like, Hey, (laughs) fights over. He needs a new profession. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. He's not good at that. But the point of that being like, do we, do we rely on that? No, hell no. no, absolutely not. That guy just had a weak constitution and hit the floor when he heard a real loud noise, you know, loud noise, bright flash. Right. Um, and I don't, I think the guy was shooting a 44 mag too. It was like, it was sure his eyebrows were singed, but yeah. Yeah. But, um, so let's, let's talk see. about that. Yeah. Let's talk about that part. So selection and upkeep of defensive handguns so far, mm-hmm. as far as caliber is concerned. So we've talked a lot, primary and secondary, that is, has talked about various calibers that obviously mission is going to dictate. Mm-hmm. So for your average everyday person, what do you find to be a, what's, what's the, what's the average? I would say minimum or maximum. We could average. go there as far average. as a caliber. Oh, I like nine millimeter 38. Uh, anything less than that is doable. Uh, you know, our, our mutual bud, Daryl bulky is all into sub caliber revolvers. I've oh, seen yeah. some impressive stuff with the three twenty seven federal with 32 H and R's. I oh, mean, yeah. it's, it's a, it's, um, and it's and, like a recoilless three fifty seven mag. Yeah, and then uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Claude? All about oh, Claude, his twenty two yeah. mouse guns, and yeah. So yeah, first we're starting with what the, what's the mission? And most yeah. most people's mission is I'm going from point A to point B carrying a gun. What caliber? Nine. Yeah. So and, why and nine? I I just like the availability. Yeah. Um, and I can give a good reference to availability. Okay. So I grew up shooting a seven millimeter weight. For those of you that don't know, that's a 308 case with a two, uh, 284 bullet, right? Uh, I, seven millimeter weight, 788 Remington, right? Like that was my antelope gun for Wyoming hunting trips with my dad. My dad shot 300 Win Mag because, like, he's a big dude, right? Uh, that was like 13, 14. 
uh, we are on our way. And I had put an uncle Mike stock sleeve with like five rounds of, of seven millimeter weight. And, uh, we get to Wyoming and, uh, he's like, all right, let's go to the, the gun range in the public national park here. We'll verify our guns. And then tomorrow starts to hunt. Awesome. Did you grab the ammo can? What ammo can? Rut row. We only have the ammo for our guns that is on the gun. So it's like, well, we'll go into the, you know, tire shop slash sporting goods slash beauty boutique slash, you know, soda stand over here in Rollins, Wyoming. And we'll just pick up a couple boxes of ammo. We'll sight our guns into that. They had 30, 30, 308, 300 wind mag, 30 six. We're sharing dad's gun. <laughs> there you go. And I'm like, well, I know my gun's good. Wait, 200 yards. I'm good. So, but the point being was availability. I have, oh. a, it's an awesome cartridge. If you have ammo for it, it's amazing. Nine millimeter is kind of the, is like international currency, man. It's yeah. like Rolex watches and Marlboro cigarettes. They're everywhere. Right. So do you still have uh, that rifle? I do. Cool. I do. And I, I actually, I have a pet load for it too now that I have loaded in bulk. Yeah. Uh, but so. yes. So nine millimeter, the overall performance, we're getting the desired penetration. Now, what about, what are things that you per, and that, this is outside of agency. What are mm -hmm. things that you personally are looking for in carry ammunition? Well, um, is it 100% reliable and is it accurate? Um, I like, I it bonded, Bonded is a big thing for me, uh, because auto glass, right. Uh, if I wasn't working in that capacity, when I retire something with a hole in the end of it, that runs my gun and shoots accurately, yeah. I care well, less about bonded or whatever. So bonded and auto glass, I think is a, is a concept that a lot of people don't understand. So what happens if you shoot auto glass with a Walmart level grade, just no, just a, just a full metal jacket. The, there, the, the best predictable outcome is there is no predictable outcome. Yeah. How about that? Well, I was, I was going to say that the, most likely the, uh, the jacket may just be uh, uh, sheared off and the, the lead core will penetrate, but your, your jacket will be on the outside. Penetration isn't the best. A lot of people, this again, this Glover thing and full metal jackets, the, the NATO uh, full metal jacket is not the same as Walmart level full metal jacket. So yeah. bond, the difference between your standard FMJ and bonded is the cup and the core are, how would you, how would you say they are bonded together? They are structurally bonded yeah. together with, they don't come apart. I have seen they're not supposed to, as, as, as a matter of fact, what's interesting when they do, they come apart with parts of the core. Mm -hmm. It's not just the jacket by itself, which is stripped off, which you may see depending on what you're shooting, what the target is and the ammunition. Yeah. And there again, that goes back to knowing your stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, not everybody out there carrying guns is going to be in a, you know, a vehicle born confrontation where they have to make a shot through auto glass, uh, whether it be, you know, tempered glass or, or safety glass, that's, that's all. 
And that is a deep, deep rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, I typically in the, the best thing that I steer the best piece of data or information out there that I kind of steer people toward is like, look, if you're going to carry a four inch service gun, let's call it service gun size gun. Yeah. Uh, the DOJ NIJ publishes its open source data, like the top 10 performers every single year of manufacturer and bullet weight of, you know, whether it be Hornady critical duty or, you know, golden saber or Winchester SXT or whatever it is. I, I'm like, I'm ammo manufacturer agnostic. I, I don't care. Um, if I'm in the capacity of that's not my primary mission is, you know, traffic stops, whatever. Uh, if it's just me on the interacting with the public, I don't want to say carry hardball, but at the same time, I don't, I, I don't really think you should way overthink the hollow yeah. point aspect. Right. Um, because <laughs> Let's look back at the 1920s and 30s. They body bagged a lot of people with round nose lead. Okay. Like it, it had, there's a lot more layers to it than just, well, I carry the latest bonded, da, 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 the super, whatever. I think you this kind of in the right place. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you said, which I really, really like. We're going to start at full metal jacket. That's, that's our baseline of performance. And that's the best you can hope for. Yeah. Um, I, and Chuck Haggard, man, if you ever get a chance to watch him do a live ballistic lab, and I won't say it, it is not under scientific parameters, right? Like temperature and, oh, the gel is this and that. Uh, but it is a really, really fascinating dive into, uh, it, and I'll give you an example it, but he, he sets up gel blocks and four layer denim and they're clear gel, which is a product that's, I think it's like 95% of what FBI rated ballistic gel is. Um, and I've seen ballistic gel tests live. And I can tell you after they've been sitting out there on the range for a while. Eh. So unless you have really controlled conditions that are scientific, yeah the clear gel is a pretty good baseline, yeah. right? So he shoots like I hand him ammunition issued ammunition out of two of my guns. Click, 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 click. Here's four rounds. Shoot one through a four inch service gun, shoot one through a, a, a snubby or a, sh a shorter gun. And I can tell you, neither of them performed the way that you would expect. There was not mm -hmm. this beautiful petal flower of death it was just okay it did pretty much we've got great penetration out of it and this one deformed a little and this one didn't because it was out of a short gun so the best you can hope for is hardball the yeah. best performance you can hope for and that is not us endorsing and saying yes carry full metal jacket no it's you just need to understand this is what's going on and this is this is the baseline personally i want better but yeah. Again, I, penetration I, is way for me, way more important than expansion. And, and something else that, uh, that came up during that, like Haggard's ballistic lab is man, I was carrying 147 grain. I think it was golden Sa bonded golden saber at the time. Just what I was issued. I got to carry that. Right. 
that sucker went through 20 some inches of ballistic gel and buried in a berm. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, <gasps> and I went, okay. <laughs> They're like, what, what? Well, you might want to have a chat. And I went, here's the thing in my current mission, that might be a B pillar. That might be uh, flesh, bone, flesh, flesh, bone, cavity. Am I opposed to that? No, not necessarily. Now, if I was working a security gig at a local private school, am I maybe going to tailor my ammo to a little more predictable? I don't want to say download, but maybe less penetration, more expansion out of the gun. Maybe I can find a load that does that a little better. Perhaps. Um, because I can tell you after it careened through that ballistic gel, it buried for, far enough in the berm to go, Oh yeah, that's still fatal on the other side of whoever was standing there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, Daryl bulky and Wayne Dobbs rule four exists for a reason and it doesn't stop on the gun range. Yeah. So gosh, we're, we're way off in the weeds there, but, but this is also part of figuring out your gun. That's part of the whole process. Um, so we did, we used clear gel uh, last month in some ballistic testing and used some hard cast. I, I think we did some 38 plus P and then some 357. And it was cool. We had three of the gel blocks and, and still went through all three and with authority smacked that berm. Just like, well, that's cool. And that's out of a, I think that was out of my uh, 620. 627. So what is that? A two, two and change inch barrel. Yeah. And it's three quarter or something. Yeah. And it's still, yeah. Penetration was impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. And there again, we're in the golden era of bullet design, man. Like I I had a a guy, he's now deceased. He was a old officer, old retiree friend that was kind of a friend of mine and and he got in a shooting in a department store and do you remember like the the uh oh like the they were like laminated pegboard so it was like formica with pegboard on it that they used to use it like uh department stores for like displays him and another dude are just giving it to each other across through this thing and he's shooting like 125 grain supervel or something and the bullets are barely making it through the stuff. It's mm. hitting two layers of that backer board and just spraying lead. And this is in the seventies, right? If that had been modern bonded ammo, you know, the bad guy wouldn't have went, ah, that's right. Lead poisoning. What I is that? wish I wore eye protection. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I've seen examples of that with modern ammo too. It's just the best predictability that you have is it, it, it's likely to perform like hardball hopefully it performs better than that but um you know the military's used ball with quite some modicum of success for like a hundred plus years at least literal ball (laughs) yeah but does that mean that i'm going to go well the military used it in 1910 i should probably carry 230 grain round ball in my 45 no no we're going to try to tailor that to something a little more modern and I think a lot of people lose sight of with the defensive guns, uh, the whole purpose of the hollow point 
a lot of people think it's, well, it does more damage. And yes, no, that's a byproduct of it. Yes. But the main wait, reason wait, is- wait, I, I just need to stop. No, you. Go ahead. For, for those of you listening, you sit down. This is going to this is going to hurt. This is you're going to pass out after hearing this because I know exactly where he's going. And this is going to upset a lot of people. But it's true. Take it, Brian. Yeah, it's 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 not to do more damage. Yeah, that's a byproduct of it. But it's so that it doesn't kill things when it passes through you or through the person you're or, or threat you're shooting. It's to limit the amount of damage it does once it leaves the threat that you've shot. Um, now, some people might argue that and go, no, 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 no. It's so that it gives the energy dump and blah, 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 blah. No, the main reason is so it doesn't, it, it, it minimizes the effects downrange. Yeah. Um, and if you go into it knowing that, um, it really starts to change your perspective about, about bullet performance. Yeah. And especially if you go ahead and accept right away, the best I'm going to get out of this is hardball. Everything else is a bonus. And you apply rule four religiously that know your target and what's beyond it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, as a matter of fact, I, I had this in an article I published not too long ago, exactly this. And then I also brought up the point that a lot of people that have been shot, the good ammo is usually found either just inside the skin on the opposite side of the body from the entrance wound, or it's caught the clothing, which that is amazing. So one of the things we found shooting HST in some of these gel tests, uh, we shot it through a 365 and through, I think my CZP09, which is right there. And the 365 mm -hmm. is somewhere on this side. Um, 147 grain HSTs, one block of gel, shot it. And it essentially was pooped out of the, and I mean that it was pooped out of the other side of the gel block. Mm -hmm. And so we shot it and Rhett yells, stop, 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 or something like that. And he goes and finds the bullet completely intact. Well, it's it actually, it was a flower of death. It was very nice looking. It was still also hot. So he probably burned his fingers, yeah. but it, it got pooped outside the other side of the gel block, picked it up and showed everyone. And that was really cool. So, okay, we're going to shoot the next gun. Let's put a bullet stop. So I took a box, uh, just a cardboard box, put it on the opposite side of the uh, gel block. And the, my buddy, Nate shot the gun penetration. You hear the thud. Oh, it hit the, it hit the cardboard box. We go look and there it is. It's right there intact. Cardboard box is not harmed. There wasn't enough energy in that round to harm the cardboard box. And there, no, there goes Brian. He just got his pizza. I just, I just remembered something. Yeah. Here is a 147 grain golden saber. Oh, that wow. Chuck Haggard shot through my P365. Yeah. Uh, that I rec the reason I recovered this one, it went through about 13 inches of gel. Yeah. After four layer denim and it still got the denim in the end. Now, when he put that in a four inch clock, 19, yeah, it hauled through the full length of the like 16 inches of clear gel. And then he had another one kind of teed off the back of it. It cruised through both of those and buried itself in the berm and I didn't recover it, but I just remembered I had that. It was yeah. just out of, just out of headphone reach there. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people that were at that lab were like, Oh my God, that's horrible. And I'm like, not for what I do. Yeah. Well, it's the mission, right? 
So and, wait, uh, wait. So you know the environment you're working and you have an yeah. expectation and you know kind of how this all works together. This is crazy talk. You stop that. <laughs> I just saw where Brad is bombing us again with. Mm-hmm. So should I stagger full metal jacket and hollow point yeah. and magno? Please don't. It just makes the crime scene way weird. <laughs> hey, there's two different head stamps for two people shooting here. No, I'm, <laughs> no kidding, but kind of not. Uh, but yeah, so like back to let's circle this back to the whole, if you want to, to the whole defensive handgun thing, right? Um, knowing your ammo is something that people spend not enough time on yeah. and way too much time on. Yeah. Um, knowing like the break in period of your gun is something that people spend not enough time on and entirely too much time on maintenance. The same thing. There is a happy medium with all of this stuff that I think if you, if you at least are aware of it, one, your life is way more simple. And two, uh, you have a way more predictable outcome. You have a way you have control of way more of the, the factors, but, yeah. um, <laughs> well, in these types of situations, so we're talking about a deadly force situation, how many factors are within your control and how many of these factors are you giving up control that you could be controlling? Personally, if it were up to me, I would be in control of every factor I can to put it in my favor. The, the thing I look at like, and this will, this, this sounds like a bit cliche, but the four things that you should exercise period in any de- like defensive encounter are the four four safety rules as codified by Colonel Cooper. Yeah. Those four things, if you, if you are religious about them, uh, that is four things that play to your favor. Um, And they're so simple. They're like so simple. Uh, But those four factors, you have, you have a, a, a modicum of control over and, Anything outside of that, your your gun ammo combination, reliability, clothing, all, all these other things, they're variables that at the time of the encounter, you can't you can't change them. They just are what they are, right? But the but the things that you can exercise extreme control over is by exercising those four safety rules, even in a deadly force encounter that's to me, that was a concept that I don't think I got till I was a little older that those rules, that's not just for training and that's not just for the range. That's for everything to include deadly force encounters. And I, I don't know if it's maturity or what, but it's true because if, if you think about it and I'm not telling you, Brian, I'm telling the, the people listening, if you think about it, what are the rules? What are we trying to avoid with the rules? We don't want to accidentally harm, kill, maim, destroy things. We don't intend on doing killing, harming all that. So we want to put all the deadly force into the bad guy. We don't want to accidentally shoot our kids. We don't accidentally want to shoot innocence. We need to know what's beyond the wall. Uh, Remember the Kmart shoot. Was it a Kmart or target Uh, a few months ago? Officers responded, shot an AR-15, round went through a wall into a changing room where someone was struck and killed. Mm. That's something you, you, you can't really control that. 
But no. if you if if the I, I suspect if the round went into the suspect, not and and suspects they may be moving. Yeah, and that it's easier said than done. Yeah, um, yeah. That's one of the uh, and that dives into a whole training rabbit hole. But uh, I just posted one today that they made in Florida. It's on my Facebook page. It's a, a debriefing of an officer involved shooting. Suspect had a pellet gun. Uh, had a fatal wound inflicted on a deputy. Uh, there was no other gunfire than from deputies uh, in this particular incident. It yeah. is a, it is soundly a tragedy. Yeah. Uh, there's, but there again, and I don't know the, de- the complete details of it. Um, I, I don't know what's going to become of it. It, it just the debriefing i posted the debriefing to kind of reinforce that rule four is there for a reason and it and it doesn't stop at the flat range um and and unfortunately you know we 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 lost a a a deputy because of that and it's uh i feel i feel like my heart goes out to the deputy and his family but on the flip side of it it goes out for the guy that that ultimately pulled the trigger on that because his life will never be the same ever, regardless of how much counseling he goes through and, 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 and debriefing and all that, uh, that will live with him for the rest of his life on earth. And, uh, you can't undo that. Yep. Um, and I didn't mean to end on a real, like serious, serious the topic, the topic is serious. It is. Um, I, I, I love that, like the guys that I, I really, uh, I take a lot of information from and, and people that have mentored me, guys like Wayne Dobbs, Daryl Balky, Haney McMood, uh, Tom Givens. It's like, you, you do realize, you do understand that this is life or death. Yeah. And it's not just life or death in the sense of I'm going to have to defend my life. It is what happens with those, those projectiles when I am in the process of defending myself or someone else. Right. Um, and you can't take them back, man. Yep. You can unscrew a light bulb. You can't take back. <laughs> you, you can't take those back. And it's, uh, it, it's, it, it all, it all boils down to that, the, like the, the four safety rules on that, yep. but, uh, and, and the tool just learn your tools. You know, learn, learn the pros, learn the cons, pick one you like, pick one you're comfortable with, pick one that's easily maintained. It's like, uh, you know, we, we spend an inordinate amount of time off into the weeds about that, but the bottom line is it's a life or death thing. It's and, not for the gram. That's not for cred. That's not know. for this is yeah, it's, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. What are your, I don't care what your split times are. Oh, I don't no. care what optic you had on your gun. What ammo? Matter of fact, that actually, uh, that was one of the things I was going to bring up to Riley, but I opted not to talking about the, dif- the differences in his triggers and comparing competition environment to real life situations. Okay. We're facing a, a target. It might be static. It might be moving. We have X amount of time to react and shoot it with a deadly force encounter, I need to be able to shoot as fast as I can process, but not faster. 
I shouldn't be shooting faster than I can process. That leads to that's the potentially rule violations. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, and I have a, a friend, he, he retired recently. Uh, who's one of my favorite dudes to work for and around. And uh, he was involved in an incident. And one of the big reasons it stands out in my mind is the suspect initially had a stainless Beretta 92 Inox and he was shooting a 92 FS blue gun. Oh, and, and he beat the bad guy to the punch. Right. Um, he fires two rounds, boom, boom, and puts them both high center chest at about 18 yards. Uh, and I asked him later, I I've, I've actually handled the gun and I was like, yeah. <laughs> right. Like I, I, I'm feeling like, 20 pound hammer spring. And I go, I go, good night, man. And he goes, never felt it. Yeah. I said, Oh, I said, Oh, so you didn't do the cheat the in-service cheat thumb cock the hammer on the way out. And he goes, Nope. He said, as a matter of fact, right about the time the sights crossed onto the spot that uh, I thought was okay. The gun went off. Yeah. I said, so you, you had no cognitive conscious, uh, like reference that that is a really heavy trigger. And he goes, no, you could have doubled the weight. He goes, I hammered through that thing. Like it wasn't even there. Yeah. And I weighed the trigger on it. It weighed 14 and a half pounds mm -hmm. and the single action on it weighed seven and a quarter. And I, and went, if I, if I remember correctly, isn't a Glock 34, 35 at 3.5. Yeah. And in reality, when they're, you know, with that three and a half pound connector, they're about four, four and a quarter and Still. With the standard connector. They're five and a half. The other's almost double. Yeah. And the, it's quite, the, it's triple. If we go double action, the G, the G 45 that I carry every day that the trigger weighs out on average, about 5.6 pounds. Um, if you manage it well, it, it, it it's, it's a kind of a non-issue. Yeah. And I did, uh, I did bring, my favorite gun of all time. It's number 50, the elite LTT. And uh, I think mine's 30. Oh man. Come on. Okay. Let's see here. Not pointing the gun at anything that I care about. Yeah. 30. Thank you. All right. So, but yours has been shot more. Probably. <laughs> I took that gun to Ernest shop when I was at Gunsight last year, I dropped down to see Ernest and Amy and I handed Ernest that gun. He's like, Oh, take that to the ultrasonic. This is horrible. Uh, that gun, I oh, shot it, it. Oh man. Shot it for two years. Uh, and here's an interesting thing. The only thing I specced when I had him respring the entire gun, well, not him, but one of his gunsmiths that was really good and faster than I could be, uh, was I said, put a stock steer sear spring in it. He's hmm. like, what? I went, yeah, just put a stock sear spring. So in it'll it last longer. No. Uh, you know, this, this, the little looped sear spring, uh, you know, there's, uh, they tune those and I have them put a, a bone stock factory went in so that my, my single action trigger is four and a half pounds. Okay. And they're like, what? And I go, yeah, dude, like the way I shoot, if that sucker's lighter than that, I start having downrange ADs where yeah. I move when I go, Oh, it goes now full some, auto. <laughs> yeah. Now some guys manage that. Well, I don't, I'm a yeah. little like Luddite with that. So uh, but I, I just, I like that the sensitivity of being able to find the wall with it instead of just cruise right through it. And, uh, now when it has the tuned sear spring, I can shoot splits with that. Like I'm shooting an open gun 
But when I'm really processing shot to shot, I found that there was no benefit in it. And I was like, I would rather have that, like that tactile. Okay. That's where the sear is going to break. Yeah. Uh, now we're talking master's degree level stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, my, my dad was, my dad was in a shooting in 79. I have the gun. It's a model 19 dash three that has a little bit of action work. Like they cleaned the crunch out of it. Um, that gun's got like a 13 pound double action trigger mm-hmm. and he went five for five. Yeah. Right. Um, so that being said, I like trigger weight for competition is awesome for, for defensive guns. That's something you can manage. Right. I don't, I, I don't get caught up in that too much. Uh, I mean, I carried a SIG that two, two, six R it's got the, it got upgraded with like the SRT, the short reset trigger when I thought reset mattered and all that. Uh, and it's got a narrowed trigger all from SIG. Yeah. Uh, that gun's got a 12 and a half pound double action first shot. Uh, the only shooting, the only time I've ever discharged a firearm on duty was uh, a, a St. Bernard. And I went five for five at like 12 and a half yards with that. And the first shot, I never, all I did was go dial it in, dial it in, dial it in. Work the sights, work the sights, work the trigger, pal. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a nothing incident, right? Yeah. Uh, except, and I'll give you this on the defensive pistol thing. Uh, first question that I was asked immediately after that will blow your mind. Uh, where was there a barrel? No. no. <laughs> uh, where did your rounds go? I'm like, excuse me? like into the dog and they're like, no, 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 no. Now, where did they go after that? Cause no. they're not still in the, the animal. Where were you at? Where was it at? And where were you shooting? Because there was sighting houses behind and the dog was in an alley and I had processed all this beforehand. Okay. Here's the window that I can shoot in and, and make sure that nobody. You were shooting in people's windows. No, I mean the, the time yeah. frame or as, as a reference. Uh, but the point of that is there was processing going on in that. It wasn't just a, okay, I'm going to sling lead now yes. because I should. Um, and first thing they did was go to all the houses behind it, knock on the doors. Hey, look around the back. <laughs> hey, did anyone get shot? <laughs> hey, is there, any, is there a baby in a crib back here? That's right. Um, but the double action trigger pull was a non-issue. It was 0% of that entire incident. Uh, most of the guys I talked to that have been in a shooting with a double action first shot gun uh, that is unfettered is like, uh, yeah, I, I forgot that was even there. Like, really? Yeah. Some of those guns you pick up and go, oh, dear God. And uh, yeah, I didn't even know that was there. Yeah. So, so yeah. And that's another thing I think a lot of people overthink is trigger poundage and reset. Yes. Um, yeah, I did just, just learn it, just shoot it. Like, so yeah, we, uh, so the Taurus executive, yeah, A56, yeah, yeah. it has a, the trigger's definitely heavier than uh, a lot of my striker fired. It's smooth though. It's consistent. It's mm-hmm. a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. Training practice. Which 
the bigger issue in all of these things, whatever gun you decide to carry, whatever ammo you decide to carry, um, go out and actually train with it, practice with it. What a concept. And, and if you're not carrying a defensive gun or you're carrying like, I, I subscribe to Riley's deal about, I like to have two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or like, it seems like you've got about 36. I've, yeah. I've lost no, of the same though. I only have oh, a couple doubles. Yeah. So of that, if you have a gun that you train with like exclusively, you're going to figure out where all those failure points are. Yes. And all the maintenance you need to do. I can tell you, I learned the hard way that the uh, Beretta 92 stainless barrels after about 300 rounds, three to 500 rounds, they need, you need to put a brush through that dude. Hmm. Cause I'm the world's worst about muzzle cleaning or cleaning a barrel. Cause I figure that projectile is going to clean it way it should better be. than I ever could. Self-cleaning, right? Like an oven on rifles. Sometimes. Yes. But that's a whole nother that's a whole nother podcast, man. Yes, it is. Um, if you ever see any uh, used, yeah, used 226s in nine, railed or non-railed. And I've been looking for one of those forever. Because I used really? to have, a, I, yeah, he had a 20, uh, 226 as a duty gun, sold it. And I, for, and, not, and I wouldn't carry it, but just to have, because it was, I liked it. It was a good gun. And it yeah. was, wait, it's a double and also double single, not a single action only or a double action only. Right. But I, yeah, the original double single, it's just mm -hmm. a good solid gun. Yeah. Yeah. I, and they're one of those companies, man, like different eras are different guns. Uh, oh, if I, I got a West, West German made one. Like the one in my safe. That's what, that's probably why it's in a safe. Yeah, but yeah they, they definitely maintain their value too. Yeah, that gun's got a frame crack though. It's just oh. heartbreaking, but it's, it's fun shoots, It still shoots great. It rattles like a trap, and it's just put tape to it. Just tape it. It'll be fine. On the mag release too, where the mag, the old mag releases where they were, cut, oh man, they would chip out a piece, and mine is, and I will. And then I've got a West German two twenty too, mm -hmm. and. uh those spring steel folded slides. I mean, they're, they're archaic, man, yeah, but, but they cool. were cool. Um, that's right. Yeah. Optics would not, you couldn't get it milled. Nope. And, uh, I have, I have settled on optics, by the way, I do. Yeah. I, uh, I actually have two of them. Uh, I, I'm, I think I'm going to get an optic sometime. I don't know when for the, uh, for the, uh, anti red dot guy. I got two of those. Mm -hmm. Let me see them. Uh, I got two of those and I, I, I may unload that one at some point. I don't know. Uh, but they're all waiting for guns. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm, I'm very dead set on, I will not run a plate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's I a failure point. Yeah. And I don't like little screws and I don't, yeah. Like, I don't like batteries when I have to like rezero a gun. So, uh, I've been very, very like slow to, uh, adopt press into that, yeah. adopt that. Yeah. But, yeah. So what else you got? You got to have a final something. Cause I actually know as far as final something is, I think you've said it perfectly. It's, I, 
we, we need to know what the gun can do. We need ballistically, we need to know, have a, a reasonable expectation of knowing what it's going to do. And I love what you said about, yeah, full metal jacket. This isn't the goal we're striving for, but it's a baseline of performance and we can do better, but don't expect it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of goofy ammo out there. There's a lot of snake oil out there. And it's kind of sad because people are falling for it left and right. They're going after this, all these, these cool advertisements and stuff. If you're watching a YouTube video or an advertisement and they're making gel tests look exciting or dramatic, there's something wrong with the product. Plain and simple because gel tests are not exciting unless it's the data that it's exciting. And it truly can be. Yeah. I've been to two real ones in my entire life too. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that Chuck Haggard doesn't do a real ballistic test. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Chuck does an awesome, an awesome proof of concept demonstration, real life interactive. It's, it's, uh, it's far more entertaining. It's far more informative than when you're watching people with a ransom rest, sandbags, a chronograph thermometers and, real live ballistic gel like that's been okay we made this at nine o'clock this morning it's 10 15 it's at the proper temperature and we're going to fire one round yep and everybody stands around and poof and then and then the 30 minutes of data collection in between it's like it's not exciting not at all so uh, but i love i love chuck's version way better oh absolutely because it's usable yeah, and I'll, I'll pay money for that one. The other ones, I'll be like, all right, can yeah. you get to the, just hand me the sheet that tells me what it did. Yeah. Show me when you see the gel and it's exploding and that's drama, it's, it's showing the natural elasticity of flesh. That's not, yeah, it's silly. What we're getting out of gel tests, we're getting penetration depth and we're getting end state of the round. Yeah. <sighs> and that, and I'm telling you, when when you have three guys standing around a chronograph and a gun mounted in a rest and three clipboards, it's like, okay, it, we've been out of here for four hours and fired two rounds. That's exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Um, oh, and we have to have a baseline, so we got to fire five rounds of ball into the dirt yep. to make sure that the cons- uh, so for ours, elevation? yeah. So for ours, our baseline was the 147 HST. Because yeah. we can compare it. It is a very widely tested round. And we, okay, it, it goes exactly one gel block. Sweet. Um, so, yeah, know what your ammo can do. Have a reasonable expectation of that. Know what your mission is. So, for some missions, a little tiny Model 36 snub nose revolver is perfectly acceptable for that mission. Oh, like, wide cutters are so cool. So- and they're nice to shoot. 148 grain federal gold medal match. And it makes me yeah. sick to think of how many of these I parked through a B 27 into a berm. Yeah. Cause they're like gold now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, cater your, your gun to what your needs are, what your mission is, uh, test out that gun, use the gun, inspect the gun. If you have optics, make sure you're testing everything and witness marks, witness marks. We didn't get enough into that for anything that might be removable, especially with optics, witness marks are a wonderful thing. Using a paint pen, making sure you don't have rotation. You're about to say something. It's very important. Oh no. I was just, oh. I was on that. I was thinking about, uh, you were talking about know your mission and, uh, 
there seems to be a trend and I'm not knocking anybody if you do this, but I call them crew served pistols. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm it's some of the people that carry and I'm not going to knock the Roland special specifically, right but there. yeah, it, yeah. Cool concept, man. Like, uh, you know, I've heard Pressburg talk about how that came to fruition and, and when you realize it was, it was almost kind of in jest, you know, it wasn't like, it's like, Oh, well, let me see if I can keep my flashlight from getting dirty, you know? Um, and it's taken off as a trend. And then I see people that are like, well, if you don't carry 500 lumens, you'll get killed in the street. And if you don't carry it this way, and if you don't carry a 20 round with a base plate, and I'm like, where do you live? Like Beirut? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to be rude. It's just like, okay. I lived in and out of like some pretty dangerous stuff for years. And it's like most places I go, a J frame works just fine. But, you know, how uh, dare you? How dare you, sir? Burn me at the stake. Uh, Something else. Home of the, of the Roland special. Right. And and I like shooting them. They're cool, man. The hotter the ammo, the better it gets. Right. Uh, I just, but somebody asked me the other day they're like well i see you carry a gun in in your appendix rig that's got a light on it and i'm like you know i'm a cop full-time and when i get off work i don't want to have to take my loaded gun out unload it take the light off of it put it in a a, in a another holster so you know i've got so i don't even know which brand this is but i've got a holster that i I thought that was riley's it may be i've got several that are real similar uh, when I don't have the light on it, the, uh, gosh, declaration, declaration. Thank you. I forget. I keep wanting to say Commonwealth. I don't know. I watch yeah, same walking thing. dead or something. Um, but I don't like, okay. I get off work. Sometimes my girlfriend wants to go eat right now. So I'm like, Oh, pick, pop that off, put it in the, put it in a, uh, appendix holster with a light on it. And somebody's like, well, you carry a TLR seven, a, you're going to die. I'm like, Kilt I don't even mistakes. care that there's a gun light on it. It's just, I don't want to take all that crap off and deal with it and then have to put it back on for 7. AM tomorrow morning. Right. It's just a convenience thing. Um, so yeah. And I think people get way off in the weeds with that stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, though, if people want to get in the weeds, Oh, I love getting in the weeds about that. I, that was one of my favorite topics. Yeah. And I do too. It's just, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I still don't know what a photogenic barrier is. Photonic. Photonic barrier. I don't know. What <laughs> okay. Is. So here, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's your homework for tonight. Um, how often are you out and about at night or do you, are you an early Turner enter? Uh, yeah. I mean, I walk around downtown at night. Yeah. So take your, take a, whatever flashlight. I, I can't even think of a flashlight off the top of my head. Take a I flashlight. Carry, I carry a ProTac 1L, 1AA. I have for like, since that light came out. Yeah. I've searched buildings for like yeah. seven, eight years with that light. Yeah. So here's the homework. Take that flashlight and go to car dealerships, go to Walmart, whatever has the, uh, what is it? Is it not, not potassium, the orange uh, sodium. The so lights that, lights, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and shine it on something, the non-reflective surface on there, and see how much that light, and figure out w- at what distance 
is that surface actually being influenced by that light? That's all. It's just interesting to see the capabilities of different equipment. So under sodium lights, uh, low candela lights are eaten up. Their output is completely eaten up by the light coming down. And in those environments, if someone hunches over at all, or they're wearing a jacket and you can't see hands, you can't illuminate them because the photonic barriers produced by those overheads are killing any of your output. So it's weird, but it's really cool. If some, if somebody hunches over way of reaching for their waist, I'm diving for the back yeah. of a car. So, so I'm, I'm thinking like Walmart parking <laughs> lots. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But walking through a Walmart parking parking lot, usually I have a handheld and I'll illuminate as I go any potential dark areas. And if there might be someone there, Oh, good. There's someone there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just cool to see what the capabilities are. I found this out with a less than wonderful light in a parking lot with my family. And uh, I lit up an area for my wife so she could avoid something. And I, I didn't know if the light even turned on. It's just like, Oh, oh wow. it is on. But this, this ambient light, this artificial ambient light was killing my output. It's just, it's a fun test. It's fun to see what our stuff actually can do. And that goes for weapon lights as well as handhelds. Interesting. I, I had no idea. Yeah. You know? And I, I discovered it on, not discovered, but I noticed it on accident. And so then I'd started to do some uh, comparison videos with different lights under different types of uh, overhead lighting. I feel like your listening audience is going to send me a lot of photonic barrier. Hate <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, they will. You're going to get killed, man. Killed man, get a in light. the streets, in the streets. Like, yeah, you well, know. I'm, though, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, you can search a building. It's a, a, oh, guy, yeah. I work, a guy I work with. You can search a building with a Bic lighter and a J frame, dude. Is yep. not absolutely science. But I, to, just like with the gun, have a reasonable expectation and know what your stuff can do. So typically if I'm searching a building, especially on graves, I'm not going to have any ambient light for the most part. There you go. Yeah. And so if we need to use absolute darkness, to show how cool a light is, the light probably isn't that great. Huh. Interesting. That's a new yeah. one to me. But I am not a fan of weapon lights for my everyday carry. Depends I, on I'm what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm actually not even really a fan of them in the, the PD role. Mm -hmm. Now, I say that, uh, and people, somebody threw some hate mail at me from the last podcast that we did, but or modcast we did over something I said, you know, but, um, I, I like them for, for certain things. Like I yeah. know there's a bad guy in there and I'm going to go search for him. And maybe there's no other real, uh, ballistic, uh, considerations in there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Weapon mounted light. Great. Uh, but for most general police work, Man, handheld is the way Absolutely. to go and unless you're okay violating like rule like two and three yeah. and four all the time right yeah uh and the older i get i'm not so yeah well a couple of things that i bring up usually when people are bringing up the the virtues of a weapon light so and i have personally seen it in and force on force i've also seen it live fortunately no one was shot and the gun didn't go off. But if we're searching with a weapon light, if, if someone is not as well-versed, trained, and calm, 
if they're startled, typically light source winds up going to whatever startled them. Their muzzle followed that as opposed to weapon is either weapons in the holster optimally, or it's in low ready. My light will go towards whatever just startled me, not my gun. Additionally, uh, lights like the mod light right there, right right Mm -hmm. there, I think. No, there are a couple mod lights up there. One of the benefits of the mod light, if you can control yourself and not muzzle people, there's sufficient throw and spill that you can, you can shine at someone's feet at a distance and illuminate yeah. them pretty well without muzzling them. Can't do, I can't do that with my TLR one HLs or my 300 X views yeah. or X 300 views. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I got a lot of hate mail over one of those too. I, I talked about, you know, I've searched a ton of buildings with the TLR one and yeah. X 300s and I've used the cast and spill and all that to, yeah. uh, you know, not with someone that was confrontational as in like, they are waiting for me to come in. It was more, you know, yeah. Other, uh, and how I, many people train to that level though? How many people train to the level that you have gone though? I think that's what separates you from common everyday, not only carrier, but also cop because most cops I know are, they're striving for this minimum. Okay. We meet the qual we're done. Well, and the thing I see with a lot of cops is they, they're, um, and I'm, I'm going to say that I'm going to get hate mail for this one too. So whatever, but they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And then when they start to find out they haven't gone through the learning curve. Yeah. So what you see is the ones that do strive to do better, um, or, or, or seek some type of training away from an agency. Uh, it gets very convoluted very fast yeah. and, and it's because, it's too much change too fast. Yeah. Um, and then you see a lot of them that do cling to some methodology of training and that's okay. I went to a class. That's all I'm going to do. That's that because that's what they know and they're comfortable with. Um, I have been in and around the gun industry since 1987. So, I remember seeing articles about how night sites will get you killed because the bad guy will see you before you see them. Yeah. Um, And all manner of things, you know, everything from three point slings to uh, single point bungees to, well, if you have a light on your gun, somebody will shoot your gun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you're going to be behind your gun and then they shoot towards the light and you're shot. Right. How many carbines do we see without a light on them anymore? Zero. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully, Yeah. Um, You know, to all manner of, of these things and you see them in about a 15 year cycle. Right. So the 1911 kind of died. Here's an example. The 1911 kind of died about 18 years ago. It was actually closer to 15 because the holdouts that were still embedded with that held out for another three or four years and then went, Oh, well, okay. Polymer. Cool. Yeah, go clock. So what do we see now? 15 years later, ah, they're coming back. We see the 2011s are coming back. <clears throat> we got LE pricing. It's all good. Right. And I'm like, saw that movie. I've seen the challenges of that movie. Uh, weapon lights, man. I, when I came into police work, it was a no, no, no. We'll go back 15 years before that. What did we see? We saw MP5s with like freaking floodlights mounted on top yeah. of them, right? Uh, Maglite. 
Yeah. Yeah. We saw mag light mounts for carbines and I go, yeah, this is a real new concept here. Yeah. Um, I got to see a lot of that stuff firsthand. Well, what about also the 60 lumen surefire pistol lights? Oh crap. I used an M3 for yeah, like M3s. I had, yes. I had an M3. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but you see these trends, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of times in police world, the bulk of the police world tends to be in 10 years or under because after 10 years, they're sitting behind a desk or they're doing investigative work or something prior to 10 years. They're in that window of that 10 to 15 year cycle. So very few people do you say occupy a patrol car that do and stay active in training. That makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Guys like, okay, this is where I want to be. And I'm also staying on that, that edge of training. You'll start to notice the 10 and 15 year trends. And when you see them, when things like nothing against staccato, but when staccato pops up, you go, "Mm -hmm, seen it, seen that. Okay. What what are you doing different? Uh, Weapon lights. Oh, wow. We got LEDs now. Yeah. I remember when they looked like mag lights. Oh, well, what are you doing different? Oh, well, we got pressure switches and this and that and the other. Um, so that's when I get into the whole, the frustrating thing for me is looking at it with now since 87, 88, this will blow your mind. The FBI's publication on double revolver to double action, single action, semi-autos, the transition book they wrote. I read that when I was nine years old, right? Because my dad was a firearms instructor. I had this like laying on the kitchen table, right? But you probably also were one of those kids that for some reason really liked guns. Yeah. uh, There's a picture of me at six with an an actual IMI Uzi strung around. It's a thing, right? The coolest thing ever for a six-year-old. Right. I thought I had a normal childhood. Little did I know that I was the exception, but yeah. But things like that, when we like my pro, I say it, my challenge in this, I'm on my way out and I see the training trends and the equipment trends trending back to stuff that we abandoned years before. And I see the training trends going to things that we abandoned and we went back to a fundamental system. And I see them going like making huge advancements and then in 15 years or so, you'll see people go, well, no, maybe we need to go back to gun site again. Maybe we need to go to Rogers or mid South. Uh, so, so I, I hate to be a curmudgeon, but I sit on the sidelines a lot and I go, yeah, that didn't work the last time we did it. Or that was not the optimal outcome that we thought it would be. Um, I got to tell you the two, the two areas that I see that we've made the most advancement in ammo, ever. ammo and sights on handguns, yeah, slings and lights on rifles. Hmm. That's about it. All the other stuff is just, it's just more fluff, right? Um, well, I don't know with rifles. I could see LPVOs. Yeah, they, that's been done. That's been to, done. to the extent you think. Yeah, it's kind of like handgun optics. It's been done. It's never. It's not a new concept. Oh no, no. But just the the 
capabilities that we have going from a zero or one to a six and yeah. Uh, and also being somewhat affordable and then also uh, somewhat uh, robust. Yeah. The, the Colt carry handle three power. That was what 50 years ago, Okay, years ago, it's been done. Um, there was reasons we got away from those types of things, those type of things. Um, now granted the equipment has gotten better, yeah. the, but the concepts of implementation. That's uh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the same. Yeah. I, I, so when somebody goes, man, I got this new one to 10 power, this, that, and the other. And I go, it's going to be on one power or 10 power. Why do you have all the others? Yes. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Um, uh, you know, so one of the things that I think a lot of police officers could do is spend a little time, uh, spend a little time in literature like this. Mm -hmm. And what you'll figure out the dudes 40, 50 years ago, back to the 1920s, they had it figured out. Not a lot sighting systems, lighting systems, slings and sight. That's, you know, ammo that, that, okay. It's better. So the things you're listing is uh, increases in capabilities and overall performance. Yeah, but it's, it's really not because a hundred years ago, they had it figured a hundred years ago, they were doing the same thing. Oh no. I mean, I mean the things that yeah. you're saying, the, 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 the changes, and yeah. these are all very positive yeah, helping, nothing... helping the end user. Yeah. But, I look at it like this. Uh, when did patrol rifles come to prominence? Which, so we, we had most recently the LA bank robbery or the Hollywood shootout was the more recent catalyst. Oh, Brad, just, just Brad just brought the, yeah. brought the hammer. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened to him? Yeah. Well, you know, things got a little better. Things and what Brad said was 1920s. And he's absolutely yeah. right. BARs, Thompsons. How about my dad's gun safe is full of like St. Louis PD, Chicago PD, the Marlins and, mm -hmm. and Winchesters from the the 40s. Like this is not a new thing. No. Um so uh, sub sub caliber subcaliber nine millimeter ARs. So let's call that a subcaliber rifle, right? When did that come to prominence? Well, uh, going back to the Thompson, if not. Try the 1800s. I had okay. a 220 pistol. I had a 3220. Oh, cool. See, I'm thinking of Bonnie and Clyde. Right. I'm thinking, so you see what I'm saying about like, let's, let's take a dive into history yeah. and look at how these things Let's look at what they did before. Let's look at why they abandoned them because some of them, they abandoned them due to political climate. Some of them, they abandoned them because <laughs> that shit don't work. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the political, the political climate part to me, that's the most frustrating now, not working. That's good. Okay, good. Let's get rid of stuff that isn't working, but the gauge, right. you know, that's something that I think it needs more attention. I yeah, don't think I it, sh it shouldn't agree. be abandoned. Guess and it what? shouldn't be relegated to less lethal or well, breaching only. Right. Here's a thought. When I came into law enforcement, that was the only long gun you were authorized yes. to carry. Yes. Um, most of the people I went through the police academy with probably 
50% of them, 60% of them had shot granddad shotgun. Absolutely. Bird, Absolutely. Uh, but we go back in, in, in history now, you know, we're at the golden age of the gauge too, man. Like Magpul, bro. Uh, Eridus. Eridus. Uh, it, I mean, I've seen like even like Triple G is stepping into that game. It's like it's amazing to see what's what's going on there. And I'm like, and everybody's like, "Oh, have you seen the new this, that, and the other?" And I'm like, "Have you ever heard of a Remington A5?" Yeah. Like, it ain't a new concept. The semi-auto, it ain't a new concept. Like, oh, and then companies like Van Comp making it that much better. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. Or was it the Remington Model 11? I'm sorry. I have one in my safe from 1933. Mm-hmm. Like if go back and look at what some of the, the, the ambush party on Bonnie and Clyde had Yeah, a new concept. The Beretta 1301 is the, is an amazing, uh, an amazing tool that does what the guns of the twenties did. It just does it a little better. Uh, the low powered optic thing. I like I, I'm the jury's still out on that one. It's good. Uh, handguns, the best, the best things we've seen with handguns are like ammo and sights. Man, red dots have increased people's scores across the board. People are passing quals without even trying. It's cheating. Yeah, and it. here's here's a thought. How do we measure performance? Oh, testing. Uh, okay. <laughs> So let's think about this for a minute. This is my big rub with the red dot and it's not a rub with red dot operators or instructors. How do we truly measure performance? I'm not sure with the red dot. We go out and we shoot people with them. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Right. Yeah. We get into deadly force encounters. Yes. Yes. And we go, is the juice, is the maintenance, the operator training, X, Y, and Z because administrators here's some hate mail coming my way. Administrators take per, uh, uh, increases in performance on qualifications. What do cops take in, in, in what influences performance increase? Hey, we are shooting less and shooting bad guys better. You know what? I'm not seeing data pulled on for those, those things. Hmm. Real light. And now ILFE has a, a system out right now. You can get in there. If you've been in a shooting with a red dot hand, get, they'll ask you a bunch of questions. You can mm. submit it anonymously. How many people knew that? Hopefully more now that you just Hopefully said Hopefully more now. Right. So I look at it and go, okay, I have to train a person. I have to armor, maintain this. I have to, it, this is an additional piece of equipment that batteries adds what to my zeroing. batteries, glass, zeroing. Yep. A failure okay. point. A failure point. So if we go into officer involved shootings and we shoot at the abysmal less than 11% nationally world nationally, and we're using a red dot, is it, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm, man, I kind of question that right? yeah. now we're having qualifications. We're having record qualifications. They are awesome. So that means you get less ammo, less remedial. Cause you went out and met the, you met Oh, the that's team. a good point. People aren't met, getting their one-on-one that they you need. Met, you met the standard with the minimum amount of input because you had a piece of glass and a dot on your gun. Yeah. Cool. Whatever. Um, so with minimal stress also, Oh, there we go. Uh, so 
I look at the red dot thing and I go, okay, well, let's look at some data from actual offshore ball shootings. And you know what you get from that, the pushback you get from that. Oh, we, well, you know, we don't, uh, you know, the number of rounds fired, like, uh, you gotta go into, uh, you gotta go into the Leoka site and, and try to mine that data out of there. And then what's the one thing they don't tell you, what kind of sites were on the gun? Uh, yeah. So are we seeing an increase or are we perceiving an increase because we have better performance in administrative tasks? See, and I'm, yeah, and I am seeing and hearing about the administrative side saying, holy crap, this is amazing. We've never seen scores like this. That is a good question. So great. Awesome that you're getting scores. Are they able to perform? Yeah. Are we, are we shooting less rounds in officer involved shootings and, and of the rounds we're shooting, are we putting more of them on a holes? Yeah. Or, or, a-holes or a-zones a-zone yeah Yeah. did i say a-holes i meant a-zones um so there again that becomes a a, like okay night sites when i hired on uh, when i hired into law enforcement you were mandated to have tritium night sight on your gun well you you put the weapon light on it you don't really need them i've been saying that for years and i still get so much pushback. No, seriously, it's oh, okay. It's a thing, right? Haggard though has a good point in transitional light. They can help out. Yeah, yeah. I I put uh, like HDXRs on everything I own from Trigicon uh, because uh, you notice I wear glasses. I can actually see the bright orange basketball dribbling in the mm. you know in the U notch there. But uh, but that's a whole nother thing. Like with the defensive gun uh sites like not all sites are created equal mm-hmm. not all of them hit to the point of impact on your gun yeah and there was a manufacturer that riley spoke of earlier that said oh well it's a nine millimeter so you put number eight and eight sites on your gun and we find out with that platform no you put the ones that they calibrate for 40 on everything else on that gun well do you know well so like I call manufacturers and I go, so is this an eight, eight combo for the nine millimeter or is it an eight, six? Oh, what's the measurements. Now I got to go into the Googles and find out what the site heights for that manufacturer are and go, well, what are your site heights for this? Oh, they're this and that and find the spacing difference in the two and go, Oh no, I need the ones made for forties to go on my nine millimeter. And then the literature posts later, Oh, well, yeah, on this gun, it's an eight, six combo on this gun. And then I call the aftermarket manufacturers and they have no idea. And I'm like, the what? The the who? It's all alphabetical, not numerical. Yeah. Yeah. So there, that goes back to knowing your equipment. How many guys have ever had that conversation? Oh, Hey, uh, so-and-so manufacturer, uh, what, what height over, because the height overbore on this gun is different. So uh, but that comes from the PPC background. I want to know what the, uh, yeah, I want to know that, that in depth. Um, Michael says revolvers and crappy sites versus <laughs> revolvers and crappy sites. Versus Depends on laser. the mission for me. Yeah. Uh, lasers. That's a whole nother. It, you remember when those came out? I also remember not being able to see them during the day probably way before we all thought they did. And they cost about 10 grand to bolt yeah. onto a revolver. Um, Terminator. I only one. know that. What's that? Terminator one had a 
mag light sized one on a 1911. Yeah. So about 78, 79, there was a company that came into production. They had about three minutes of battery life and it was massive. Uh, you couldn't see it during the day. You could barely see it at night. Um, my thoughts on lasers in general, like on a snubby revolver, if you add them into your use of force continuum, visible display of a laser, we do it with a taser. Hey, if you visibly display the laser, you're uh, on a snubby revolver, they're awesome. On a full-size service gun, mm, unless you're shooting around a ballistic shield or something like that, yeah. I don't see much use for one Yeah, uh, because of the whole rule two, rule three, rule four thing, right? So, but if you're shooting around a ballistic shield, chances are rule two, three, and four are probably, yeah, we've covered that. Like we're going to, yeah, to do dangerous stuff. So it's all about the context of it, but, uh, man, we've gone into way more rabbit holes and I've kept you almost well, another hour. <laughs> and I, and it, it appears that I'm getting nonstop calls from the wife now. Are you? So, so, yes. so, <laughs> so uh, let's get some final thoughts, final plugs. Take it away. So where can people find you? What do you, you sell? Find, you can find me on, uh, well, I, I shut down my, my business Facebook page. It wasn't getting any traction anyway, but uh, EDC Belt Co. It, it's Everyday Carry Belt Company. EDC Belt Co., we do the foundation belt, concealed carry belt. Um, you can contact me through there. I have a personal Facebook page, and I also have the off-duty, on-duty Facebook page. It's a good way to get a hold of me. I do some very, very limited uh, open enrollment training, very limited, like four or five times a year. Uh, and when I do it, um, it's generally booked before I advertise it, open enrollment. It's people go, Hey, we want to pick your brain. I teach at the guardian conference pretty much every year, the Gar guardian nation conference that concealedcarry.com does. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, I have a Patreon now. Thanks to you. Um, it's Eastridge training and consulting on Patreon. It's three bucks a month. That's the only tier I have right now because I'm just doing some written articles and it's lifestyle stuff. It's like know your mission stuff and accessory stuff. Uh, I did one the other day on four knives that are in my carry rotation and why or why not. Uh, so that I got, I got more feedback out of that one than showing off like fancy watches. People are like, yeah, cool. All right. Moving on. Oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's three bucks a month. And, uh, I try to, I'm putting out an article a week. I also do a podcast a week with concealedcarry.com. uh, open enrollment training. Uh, I don't teach split times or any of that stuff. It's, it's, uh, rigid accountability, fundamentals and context. I don't do low light stuff. Call Eric Gellhouse. He'll come out and stay up all night with you. Um, after I retire, we might do some of that. I don't know, but, uh, let's see. Oh, there is a website. It's called slap the trigger.com. <laughs> Go look at that. And I also own jerk the trigger.com. So if anybody wants to pay me for that website, call me. Uh, but that's, I I've kind of got some training contact stuff there. If you want it, it's, it's kind of dormant right now due to some other stuff, but, uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell, man. Hit me on Facebook, face space. Cool. Okay. 
just like what I say with every episode, make sure you are supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what Brian said, if you like what Riley says, if you like what whoever says, make sure you're following them. Make sure you are liking, subscribing, share if it's something that helps you. So if any of this discussion was beneficial, make sure you're sharing it and it's overdue. It's been a couple hours. You, you probably should have already given it a like, so make sure you hit the, hit the like button. Big thank you to our sponsors, sponsors for this episode, Big Tech's Ordnance, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther Arms, and lastly, our Patreon subscribers. Big thank you to the Patreon subscribers. If you want to help support all of this whole big machine that is primary and secondary, it has so many different cogs. Go to, uh, go to patreon.com slash primary and secondary. You can help support the network. Now, what we have on deck, we have a couple law enforcement sec centric episodes that we're working on. We have a 2011 episode coming up. We also have, uh, so, oh yeah, one of the act or one of the uh, law enforcement ones is, um, in, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not translating, but basically understanding what you're seeing on TV when it comes to active shooter, basically explaining all of that, what's actually occurring. Um, we also are going to be jumping back into the survival episodes because we still have topics to talk about. Um, I also have some knife episodes in the works. Uh, unfortunately though, being on grave shift right now, it's yeah, kind of difficult to put these together because before I know it, it's already morning and I'm going to bed and I didn't contact all the people I needed to, to set up my upcoming podcast. So bear with me. We have some things being planned out as we speak. That is pretty much it. I think I, I think it's time for me to go upstairs. I think I'm supposed to be changing up a little kid's diaper now. Yay. Hooray. Enjoy that. Sorry for keeping you too long. Oh, don't apologize. That's this was awesome. No, uh, and, and uh, it, it's just nice to have real discussions. There's not well, enough man, of that. Well, thanks for having me on. And as I said before, you call me if you need a pinch hitter. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. And, and so every day after five ish, every day after five ish. Sounds good. Cool. Well, thanks guys. We will talk to you later.